Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about a very important topic, from on the outside and empty on the inside. Why are some of our best girls struggling with Yiddishkeit? This topic was inspired by a conversation I had with Arav, who teaches at a number of girls' seminaries, and he said as follows, I have so many young ladies who are so from on the outside. They look like Mother Teresa on the outside, but unfortunately that is not reflected on their insides. And I had planned on doing a show based on that about young men, young women. It could be teenagers. It could be boys in yeshiva, girls in seminary to do a show on what's lacking. What are we missing with some of them, not all of them, but what are we missing and how can we change things around? But then I spoke with another of who is very familiar with the struggles and challenges of the young of our generation and he said that the challenges of the young ladies are so different from those of the young men, you have to do separate shows. And accordingly, ladies first, this show is going to be focused on the young women and Amir Tzashem in the near future, we will do one on the young men. And accordingly, we are going to talk about a number of questions and issues today. What are the biggest challenges, struggles, and difficulties confronting our girls today? How have things changed over the years? For example, what's the impact of technology, smartphones, social media? We'll have a number of halachic questions. For example, should a parent give money to a child who will be using it for the wrong purposes? Then we'll also talk about solutions. Probably the most important thing, solutions. How do we inspire our girls today? We have a number of very experienced and wise guests joining us today. We are going to start out with Rabbi David Ostroff. He is a great posek. He is a Talmud of Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach. Teaches at a number of seminaries for a number of years, and he has um, um tremendous amount of experience in this area. Then we'll speak with Rabbi Yitzchak Schwartz. He is a posek. He is a Rav. And also, he is a representative, a posek on behalf of Kesher Nafshi, dealing with the challenges that encounter our youth today. Then we'll speak with Rebitzin S.D. Hamilton, the popular lecturer and teacher. She's been involved in Kiruv Krovim, Kiruv Rechokim for a couple decades now, tremendous experience in these areas. And then we'll culminate the show with Rabbi Daniel Mechanic. Rabbi Mechanic is the director of Project Chazon, an organization he founded in 1996 to present seminars to Beis Yaakov girls, to Yeshiva Bachrim, today's schools on the issues of Emuna, Hashkafa, and many of the issues that we will be talking about on today's show. At the end of the show, we'll also have our wrap-up, takeaways, and lessons learned learned. Before we get to our guests, let's start with a vort at Vartara. We're going to go back a Parsha, Parshas Tetzaveh. It says in the Pasuk, and this is also a Pasuk in Parshas Bincha, so we can be looking back, we can be looking forward. I'm talking about the Korban Tamid. The Torah Korban Tamid was brought twice a day in the morning, and also Ben Arbaim in the afternoon, in the evening. The Drash Fa'ayun says something very beautiful and very powerful and important. He says that we have have to be Ovdi Hashem, obviously. But we have to be Ovdi Hashem both when we are young, that's in the morning, the bulkier of our lives, and also when we get elderly, that's in the afternoon, the evening, the twilight of our lives. And the challenges are very different when we are young. We have strength, we have physical strength, but what we are lacking is wisdom and and life experiences. So we're strong on the one hand, physically, but lacking, because we don't have the experiences yet, we're still young, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the knowledge 
of what's necessary to really be successful in all areas. So that is when somebody is in his boker. On the other hand, when somebody is in their Erev, when they are getting older, when they have gotten older, they no longer have the strength in their body. That is diminished, that is dwindling over time. But on the other hand, they have wisdom, knowledge, and experiences. And he says as follows, the Rosh and that we have to learn from the Korban Tamid Shashachah, the Tamid brought in the morning, that when somebody is in the morning, the early years of his life, we have to be an Ovid Hashem, despite the fact that we don't have the life experiences and wisdom yet, but we have to be sure to be an Ovid Hashem at that point, but not only at that point, also when we get to the evening, the afternoon, the evening, the twilight of our lives, when we no longer have strength. We do have the wisdom and experiences, but we don't have the strength in our bodies. So we have to be an Ovid Hashem in the morning of our lives, in the evening of our lives, and everything in between. Such a beautiful word by the Drash Vayu. Now, it happens to be something that we lack when we are younger, as we don't have the experience, we don't have the knowledge, we don't have the wisdom, is making the right decision. Sometimes... Sometimes the young don't make the best of decisions, and that's something that is absolutely critical to do. As we see in Parsha Kisisa, such an amazing lesson, it says when it comes to the Chet Egel that Klal Yisrael saw that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't there. It says in the Pasuk, Parsha's Kisisa, Vayar Ha'am Kiboshesh Moshe Laredes. Moshe was delayed. Something happened. Something's wrong. And the question that we need to grapple with is, what does it mean, Vayar? What did they see? They didn't see anything. He wasn't there. And the Gemara explained that the Satan threw the world into confusion. The Satan brought on darkness, brought on a picture of gloom, murkiness, fogginess, confusion. That's what the Satan did. And right then, when people were perplexed, what did he show them by Yar? They saw because the Satan showed them the beer of Moshe Rabbeinu. The beer is the body, the bed that the body was lying on. Moshe Rabbeinu had passed away. It was Poreach Bavir, was floating in the heaven, and that's what they saw. They saw Moshe Rabbeinu had passed away, and that led to the Chet Egel, the Saba. From Navardic, explains as follows in his Sefer Madregos Adam. This is the Koach of the Satan to bring darkness, confusion, complexity to people at a time when. When they are confused, when they are weak, and they have to make a decision, they make it in haste. They don't consider things enough. They don't think about the consequences enough. And the con- consequence of that is the ego. That you come and you make a decision too quickly, it could be a disaster. Akhlalishal said, we have to take a step back. Let's wait another day. Don't make a hasty decision. The hate ego and the terrible consequences of it would never had happened. In fact, there's a phrase that says, Hapezizus mina satan, or the hachipazo mina satan, the same concept. Haste is from the satan. When we make decisions in haste, when we go too quickly, when we don't think about the ramifications and the consequences of a decision, that could lead to a terrible disaster. Based on that background, I just want to take a step back to refer back to something that we said at the end of last week's show. We talked about one of the Chayalim that was killed in Aza, Maoz Morel. And just to repeat what we said at the land of last week's show, I actually didn't have the facts fully correct, but it got corrected on last week's show. And I just want to go over them because it's so inspiring. Maoz Morel, the son of Eitan and Farda Morel, he was learning in a yeshiva, a Hezder yeshiva for a year year and a half, and he was 
having a challenging time. Learning was difficult. Learning of Gemara was difficult for him. He stayed a year and a half, and he thought a lot about the decision to stay, to not to stay. A very difficult decision. But in the end of the day, he said, the learning is not going well for me. It's time to move on. I'm going to go full-time into the army. And that's what he did. He joined the paratroopers' units, and I want to learn a couple lessons from Ma'oz, very important lessons. First, a little bit background. The stories are amazing about this young boy in battle, challenging. Talk about challenges. Talk about exhaustion. And they had a break, and everyone would go and lie down and relax. Ma'oz immediately takes out the Misilas Yesharim, regularly, always, constantly had a safer in his hand. This is a boy who decided, I'm physically leaving yeshiva, but I'm prepared, and I'm never going to take the yeshiva out of myself. He took the yeshiva with him, always had a safer with him, always learning despite it being challenging for him. But nonetheless, once he made that decision to leave yeshiva, he said, I'm going to continue learning. And he had learned hard in yeshiva as well, even though it was challenging. He was up early. He reviewed. He reviewed the Gemara over and over until he got it. He, in the in the army, he even inspired, everyone was looking at him because he's the one bringing out a safer. And he even inspired a non-observant soldier to learn with him. And I want to learn a couple of lessons from Maoz. Maoz ben Eitan and his father said this as well about him, made a decision. He prepared for the next step and he was always committed, meaning he's leaving yeshiva, but I'm continuing to learn no matter what. And point number two, this is what Eitan said about his son, Maoz was always setting goals for himself. This is somebody that we need to be inspired by and learn from. Whether we're working or whether we're learning, we always should have a safer by the side, ready to go. When we have a few minutes down, take out the safer. Everything adds up. Everything, every minute adds up, counts for learning. It's those small minutes that count the most. That's point number one. And number two is setting goals. We need to set goals for our learning. We need to set goals for our lives because if we don't set goals, we're never going to achieve those goals. Learn those two important lessons from Maoz. Also, I'd like to, to announce and ask people to participate that there's been a WhatsApp that has been set up to learn Mesilas Yesharim, Lizilui Nishmas Maoz Ben Eitan Morel. We're going to put the link to the WhatsApp group on the website. So please join learning for this Chayal who was such an inspiration to all of us. One more additional but unrelated announcement. A future show that I'll be hosting will be on how to set up a shidduch. Everyone should be setting up shiduchim. How should we act as an amateur shadchan? How does that work? How can we go about setting up those shiduchim? So I'd love to hear anyone who has an unusual, strange, bizarre, great story of being set up or setting others up. That would be terrific. We'll play the best of them on the show. So if you can send in all Audios of your best stories of Shiduchim, Shadchanim, and Shiduchim. That would be great. Please send them in. Before going to our guest, let's hear the riddle of the week.
This week's riddle is going to be from Parshas Vayakel. In Perik Lamed Hey, there's a Pasuk. It's a known Pasuk that says that the Nisim, they donated the precious stones that were used in the making of the Aphod and the Choshen. And as is known, Rashi brings the Chazal, that the Nisim at the beginning, when donations were requested, they said, what sounded great, we'll give at the end anything that's lacking, we'll make it up, we'll fill in the voids. But truth be told, that was not looked at as a positive thing. They should immediately have led the pack. They should have donated immediately Zrizus and the mitzvah and not say we'll wait until the end and make up anything that is lacking. And because of that lack of alacrity, the word Vahanesim is spelled without Yud. Rashi explains as follows the because at the beginning they were lacking alacrity. They were a little bit lazy. Accordingly, a letter was left out of their name. So Nesim is spelled without a Yud. And the question is as follows we can get that. We can understand that they had this lack and accordingly we're going to leave a letter out. There's going to be a lack in the spelling of the Nisim, but why did it have to be specifically a Yud? It could have been any of the other letters. Why do we have to leave out the Yud in particular? If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. And now let's go and hear from our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi David Ostroff. Rabbi Ostroff is a product of Kol Torah Yeshiva, where he was a close Talmud of Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach. And to this day, Rav Ostroff continues to learn with Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach's son, Rav Azriel Arbach. In addition, since 1996, he has Paskin Shailas on behalf of Rav Moshe Sternbach. He gets referrals of Shailas, so that go- shows the uh, intense trust that Rav Sternbach has for Rav Ashtraf. Rav Ashtraf has been teaching at a number of seminaries in Yushalayim for over 20 years, so he has firsthand knowledge of the religious challenges experienced by the young women of our generation. Rabbi Ashtraf, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I just hope I'll be able to fulfill what you're looking for. Absolutely. I have a lot of trust in you as well. Not only Rav Moshe Sternbach. <laughs> Why don't we start with a basic question? What are the types of challenges, especially religious challenges, that young women, girls, young women encounter when they come to Israel for a post-high school seminary? Okay, it's, it's a very good question. I will enumerate several things. I'll try with Hashem, enumerate several things that are the challenges and then try and focus on the more chinuchi ones that perhaps we can see what they can, we can do for them. Um, one of the challenges could be freedom. There are some parents that are very overbearing and their daughters are never allowed to do anything. And all of a sudden they're in seminary in Israel without the parents overbearing watch and they're free. And uh, we see sometimes girls doing whatever they want to, because all of a sudden there's nobody watching them. And before going into more problems, I think I think one of, it shows you that you need a balance 
at home so that when it's like a kid coming to somebody's house that they never give them candies. And all of a sudden in this house, there's a, there's a cupboard of candies and wow, there you find them in the cupboard and they close the door behind them. And it's the same idea sometimes when you see a kid is, is, is forced into something, all of a sudden they're allowed out. It goes haywire. We had a show on Tznias for women, and we talked about that when they're so forced in extreme high schools 100%. 100%. with humras, and then they get out of it, and that's causes tremendous problems. Total, it's total backlash, it's because it's not done the right way. Total, um, extreme, extremely correct, you're, what you're saying. Another thing is interesting. Um, girls come to seminary. Obviously, the, the, the you know, two peas in a pod are not exactly the same. And all of a sudden, there were a bunch of girls that are different levels of Yiddishkeit. If you're talking about the Yiddishkeit aspect, the religious aspect, some girls are more from, some girls are less from. Some girls are doing things that they don't want to do or won't do. And they face all of a sudden with a challenge. Okay, how do you get on with these people? What do you do with them? So I think it's a huge learning curve of how to experience different people from different backgrounds. Obviously, it's not drastic, the difference, because you're in the same, same type of a seminary. But after all, there are differences, and they have to learn to live with that and deal with that. And the staff have to help them with that sometimes. And it's, I think it's a very healthy learning curve. Different uh, standards. Different yes. standards. Yes, and it's, it's, it's not an easy issue that they have to deal with necessarily. Um, especially coming, if the majority of the girls coming to seminary in Israel are from America and Canada, the... The comforts of living when a girl has her own room with a carpet and her own shower, and if she has her own car, then bichlal, and all of a sudden she can be thrust into a room with three or four girls. In some seminaries, the conditions can be eight girls, and they are definitely not out of your comfort. You're definitely out of your comfort zone. And now what? And you want to go to sleep at a certain time, and that girl doesn't. Or you don't want to go to sleep at a certain time, and a certain girl does. And I think that... This this melting pot of midis is huge. All of a sudden, it's not about what you want. You have to come to terms with what other people want. And if you're snobby, you will be snobbed. And you will learn sometimes the hard way that it's not it's not kidai for you. Your daddy cannot protect you here too much because he's not in the scene. And again, the girls have it tough in the beginning. Some girls have it really tough, which is healthy because you have to learn to manage. When some parents have a lot of pull and protection, so the girl can get away with murder in school because the principal, he dare not open his mouth too much at that particular girl. These things, we've seen them. In marriage, you can't do that. What, your husband is going to protect you from your husband? Your father will protect you from your husband? You know, it's not so simple anymore. Or protect you at your job. And here in seminary, all of a sudden, so maybe the principal scared of your father, but the girl in your room's not, and you're going to have to... Learn to get on with people. You're, it doesn't help you anymore. We, this, these are things that girls encounter, which are huge. And it helps them for marriage. It helps them for life. helps them in a job. It's all very good benefits of coming to seminary. That's excellent. Freedom, being with girls with different standards. Number three, living to conditions, lack of comfort. Right. And number four, lack of protection anymore. Exactly. I think also the fact that they now have to manage some type of a budget, which is also a, a good point. Um, after being here for the first two, three weeks and they eat out every night because they're too, too fussy to eat seminary food, then the father calls them, you know how many dollars you spent on our credit card? And all of a sudden, in a week or two, they spent $300 just on food like nothing. So if the father doesn't care and they can afford it, okay. But it's a shock usually. And it, it, it's a good, it's a, they have to learn to control what they want. And 
It's healthy also. Right. Very good. So let's move on to religious struggles. You mentioned that a little bit different standards in religiosity, but you come here and you're engulfed in Limude Kodesh. Right. So what are the standards? What are the challenges that a a, a young lady may have in a religious area? Okay. So I'm also going to talk on behalf of the staff, the faculty. What, What is the faculty's goal and what are the challenges of a girl? Okay. Um, Let's talk. Let's start off when a girl comes from a more modern background. Now you can have two things: the girl herself can be modern, relatively, and a seminary usually is striving to push them higher. And all of a sudden, she's faced with things that she didn't realize she's going to have to face. All of a sudden, they're talking about much more halachic, um, careful, being careful with halacha issues. Some of them go against what their parents are, are the whole time saying. No, it's okay. It's okay. And all of a sudden, they hear, "No, no, it's not so okay." which is a challenge, especially if the girl wasn't ready for that kind of challenge. So that's one aspect, that it's firmer than her home and her. Some girls come with a very growing outlook on life, growth-orientated more than their parents, and then this feeds exactly into what she's looking for, which is amazing for her. She all of a sudden has the sky the limit, and she can grow, which is beautiful. But then sometimes it it becomes a challenge with the home. And... A seminary has to learn, and if they're not doing it, then it's a problem. A seminary is not allowed to pit the girl against her family. And she will. She has to come forward and say, look, my parents are like this and like this, or her family is like this, her siblings are like this. How am I going to integrate what I learned in my home? And either the halachic rebbein or the, the woman's staff have to teach her how to do it and guide her, and obviously not to go on a collision course. This is very prominent in Baal Shuvah yeshivas, where it's even more extreme that the, the parents are not from at all, and then he comes home and can't eat at home, and there's no Shmir Shabbos or anything. I I remember in my first year of teaching in a Frum seminary, okay, there was a girl, an amazing girl, who became much more Frum than her parents and realized that the cashers at home is... There's no standard of conscience whatsoever. This poor girl would call me in the middle of the night, American time, when her family was sleeping, and asking me how to cash her pots and how to do things so she could eat. Wow. That was that was a mind blower. And to do it quietly before they woke up. Yeah, yeah. Literally. And eventually she had her own pots or whatever. I can't remember what happened after in the family, if they swung towards her or not, which usually does happen if it's done in a nice way. But I don't remember that particular story. There was, I remember a particular girl coming to seminary where her father warned her, I do not allow you to grow in one way whatsoever. So you can ask her why she came to seminary. Because that's what people do, and, she, and the father couldn't stop her from going, but he was not, in no way ready for this kid to improve in Yiddishkeit, which was... She was an amazing girl, and she needed a lot of guidance on how to stay strong and yet not to oppose too much and yet be stand her ground. Amazing girl. It's Kiddush Hashem. These issues that come up, we have girls that are seeing that people are firmer than they are, and they don't want that. They want to regress. They want to have fun. They want liberation. Or the ones that want to grow. Do they come to you? Do the young ladies come to you with questions and issues, or is this something that you see and you need to address proactively with them? I, I believe that if you do not show that you want to help them, they won't come to you. And then after you've shown that you care about them, and every teacher has to care, Chazal teach us that um, your, children, your students are like your children. It has to have that kind of outlook, otherwise you can't help anybody. Then some girls will realize that you're out for their good, and they will be open and honest about everything, because you will not judge them. 
oh, you're a bad person. They won't hear that from you or get that feeling from you because then they won't open up. Then some girls will open up and other girls, you have you see that they're in kind of a trouble. You see that something's bothering them and then you can gently start prodding. Is there anything you want to talk about? Is anything bothering you? How seminary? Because you can do that. Then eventually they see that you're on their side. You're not against them. You're not going to tell the parents sometimes things that they tell you. You might not even go to the Hanhole. Don't worry, it stays between us. I want to help you. And then they're prepared to be to open up to you. Now, when they come, do you have to deal with fundamentals? For example, Emuna, does God exist? Do they have a commitment? Or is that something that they already come with and that's uh, not, not something that you need to touch on? Everything's there. Everything. You have to touch on everything. I've had girls ask, prove to me that God exists. How we deal with it is another issue, but... I think it usually comes from pain, something they're going through. If you've had girls that prove to you that God exists or does not exist. They want proof that, that he does. That he does. Yeah, and we're talking about from seminaries, okay? Uh, the other day, in, a, in let's call it a from a seminary, a girl says to me, I don't dive in one word at all. Help me, which was wow. And if you would, look, if you would see her, you, would, you wouldn't believe that, the way she's dressed in her uniform and everything, and that's not the story that her, her physicality is telling you. But she's in pain. Something's bothering her. Something's disturbing her. And we're talking about girls that came out of the Frumus Bezyakovs, but it's irrelevant. There's something bothering them, something blocking them, and they need help, which is amazing that they're coming forward. Right. Do you think that's a subjective thing, something's bothering them, or is it that there was a lack of education where they're coming from? All right. It can be both. Obviously, it's, it's so difficult, it's so complicated. But I think something, Ari, that you touched on before, that when the sneers is forced on them sometimes, I can't, obviously not every school and not every parent, but by and large, the majority of, of girls that I've worked with, it has been like that. And the very few girls that I can say appreciate sneers. They do it. They, some of them have to do it because Gehenna is hot. Uh, other reasons like that. But unless it's taught in a way, by, it doesn't matter by whom, but unless it's taught in a way that sneers is your benefit, it's your gain, it's your gem, then they're going to do it out of force. But I think a lot of the Yiddish kind sometimes is kind of forced onto them. This is what you have to do, and God's more powerful than you, and if you want to go to you have to do this. It's, that's not Yiddish kind. That's not healthy. And I think it, that's why even if a very yeshivish girl comes to a yeshivish seminary, she will have these issues. She's not comfortable with what she's doing. She's not happy doing it. And that's not Yiddish kind. Yiddish kind is exciting. It's happy. It's I gave you something beautiful, but they don't see it like that because so often, not all, there's some very good teachers and principals in schools. I'm not blacking across the board. But it's too often that I personally come across and I think other teachers and principals that girls are not comfortable with a Yiddish kind. It's not something they're excited to do. So my biggest goal, my personally, I teach personally halacha and hashkofe, and the halacha I wanted to be exciting for them to keep. And I mentioned this week in a Frum seminary, do you know why halacha is exciting to keep? And the girls looked at me with their eyes open and said, you're kidding, right? You're joking. You're serious? And I came to prove to them how it can be exciting. And for them, we're talking about 18-year-old girls that have been through the system in a Frum seminary, their eyes wide open and said, serious? And it's chaval. It's a, it's painful. Why did it have to? Why does it have to be like that? Why can't it be an exciting journey to do lots of Hashem? 
Because that's what Yiddishkeit is. If we're thinking about this in the context of the Sefer Echinach, we're kind of getting stuck at the beginning of the Sefer Echinach with the Averas and the Halachic portion, <laughs> and we're not getting to the Tamiya Mitzvahs. 100%. Asking. Fascinating. I'll, I'll take it even further. Um, I incorporate as much as I can whatever I teach, the Rebbe Mislonim, Nesivis Sholim, Rapinkus, which both bring a, a huge excitement to Yiddishkeit. And I try and impart that to the best that I can, because that is what wakes people up. That's what. So all of a sudden, keeping Shabbos is a gift for them, not something that if you if you break Shabbos, you're stoned. No, it's a gift. It's a matone, even sneers, even it doesn't matter. Getting up in the morning, think of the of the of the privilege you have to do lots and Hashem. Everything you do, all of a sudden, girls are realizing. Wait a minute, this is exciting. This is something I want to do. So when you're teaching Hilcha Shabbos, you're adding all of that in as well. I do I do that, yeah. I still do Really beautiful. Let, let me ask you, have things changed over time? You've been teaching for a couple decades plus. Have you seen, seen it changes because of maybe technology or because of corona? Now we're in the war, but that's a little bit short of a period to look at. But over the past 20 years, the internet, smartphones didn't exist. You'd have to, 20 years ago, maybe wait at a payphone and put Asimones in. I don't know if that was 20 years ago, but maybe that was 30, certainly 30 years ago. But walk us through, have there been transitions or has this been a pretty static thing that you've seen? I'm not an expert, I think, to answer that, but I'll tell you what I have observed. Number one, um, the, the attention span is getting shorter. And that could be because... As you say, maybe maybe it has to do with technology and movies, etc. The gratification for something is almost immediate. There are lights flashing that are grabbing you. There's no patience to see an outcome. So the, the you have to get to a message fast. It has to be entertaining. Just for an example, there used to be brilliant, brilliant rebane, but they, used to, they were monotonous. So once upon a time, it didn't bother you. If you ever heard Ravolbe speaking, he wasn't jumping up and down and waving his hands. He started off on a very low key, and you had to listen and concentrate, and it was mind-boggling. There were other Rabonim on that level that was the same. Today, that doesn't sell, because if you're not an actor or a bit of a clown or a bit of a joke here and a story there, the fact that you might be saying something brilliant means nothing. Again, there are girls that will pay attention, because they, they have... They have very analytic minds, and it's talking to them. But I think, by and large, the hours of the classes are made shorter because the attention spans short. It, it obviously requires people that that's their field to analyze that. But we see that. I, I, I the same from the boys yeshivas. Actually, I, I was I was oh. giving a beer at a boys yeshiva once, and and uh, there was a guy who was. I, I said, "Cell phones, don't look at your cell phones. You know, put them away." So he was looking at his cell phone. So I, I I said, "Can I have that?" So he gave it to me, and he pulled out a second one. It turns out he had three smartphones. Oh my god! And then a rebbe at the same yeshiva told me that he uh, he collected all the phones at the beginning, and then he hears a. Still, music and everything. The guy was controlling his smartphone from, from his watch. So that, so those are the, it's boys and girls, women, young men, young I, I, women. So that's take, there's one in my early years of teaching. I was under Rabbi Shari Greenwald in his seminary in Ma'ok, and one of the things he pointed out that I realized as well was in the beginning of my student of teaching years. At the end of the year. Let's say there were 100 girls that year in seminary. You would get 70, 80 letters from the girls at the end of the year thanking you and so on. As technology moved up, and the girls don't have smartphones in seminary, 
But as somehow it dwindled down to 50 and to 40 and to 30, there's this lack of communication skills other than through the phone. The phone is ha-ha and an emoji, and you, 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 you said your sentence. But to articulate a sentence and, and write something out on a, on, a, on a paper with a pen, it's write a whole letter and formulate things in your mind, seems to be dwindling away. Is it also indicative of lack of Akara Satov in this generation? I don't, or is... I don't, I can't point out to that. I think they, they, they would like to show you that they're excited for what you've done for them, but I don't even know how to put it in writing anymore. Some people, I'm not saying, again, not across the board, but there's been a dwindling of it. There's something might be connected. It's very interesting. Tell you to communicate directly. Yeah. Because you don't, you don't need to. You, you send someone else's emoji or you write back, ha ha, and then. You're, you're amazing at uh, connecting. No, you're not. Right. You're not seeing anything. So one, one, another question for you is you are receiving the young ladies after they've gone through elementary school and high school. Right. What advice do you have to principals, teachers of high schools, for example, and how they should address the immune issues, the right. focus on davening, having a pneum that represents and reflects the chutz? We seem to have the outside, but some girls are lacking on the inside. So obviously everything cannot be done in seminary and the education should start younger. I know there are efforts in some organizations to educate on honesty and you can't wait until kids get to age to start teaching them ethics and honesty when dishonesty may be ingrained in cheating in school and the like. So what's your message? We have principals, we have teachers, we have that listen. How do we start earlier? Okay, I, we say in Hebrew, katonti. Okay, I'm nobody. And who am I to give suggestions and advice to anybody? But I, I'll, re, I'll re repeat something that I said before, which I think is what's lacking to some degree. And I was Taka sitting with a principal in New York, and she asked me, what do you think we should fix? And I said, excitement with Yiddishkeit. Excitement. It needs to be taught to be excited. <laughs> you can't, obviously, you cannot teach excitement. You have to be excited. And if you have teachers that are excited with the Yiddishkeit, and Baruch Hashem, I see a lot of teachers that are. A lot of teachers are, when they're teaching, they're not teaching a text, even if it's text-based, but they're teaching themselves, which is what a student needs to feel. A parent needs to give that. We all know this. You cannot tell your kid to be quiet in shul when you talk. Okay. You cannot tell your kid to be excited with davening if you're not excited with davening. So if you're excited with davening, your, your kid will get the vibes from you. Okay, this is what davening is. And then then he can dabble with excitement. He's caught, he wants to emulate his father. A, t- a teacher has to be the same. They have to be excited with the Yiddishkeit. And a sneers teacher needs to be excited with its sneers. But, in own, but again, only in a way that the kid will realize, I would like to be like her. With all due respect, if the teacher is 85 and the kid's 15 and she's telling her to be a bit sneers, and the kid looks at the teacher and says, I don't want to be like you. It's not going to work. I'm telling you now, Ari, in brackets, you might want to strike this, but it might not be something you can put out. You know, whenever our editor hears that, he leaves it in. <laughs> okay. but you, you, you cannot ask a child to emulate a teacher who looks in her eyes as something from 200 years ago. Yeah, it can work. On the, on the Tznia show, we had some mechanchot saying that. They, they said exactly. It's not going to yeah. work. I see that all the time. It doesn't work. But also with it, um, when you talk about Hashivu Satoiro, which is something that's a big topic in seminary. You need to bring people that enjoy learning Torah and to talk about it. 
You can't have someone tell you textbook, this is what you're supposed to feel. Baba Maces, it needs the excitement. And I think in in high schools and elementary schools, I'm not saying they're not. Again, they, they are fantastic schools out there. But this is the crux of it. Show that Yiddishkeit. If I, if I may, Ari, let me... I heard this marshal once. The, the high-tech phones, whether it's Apple or the other one, Samsung, every few months or every every year at least, they're putting out a new model with different lights and different things and different ways to track you, to buy. You don't need a new phone, but they're going to get you to buy one. If you don't do that in Torah to make it exciting, what was good five years ago to make it exciting is not going to be the same today necessarily. If you don't up your game, you've lost. And I heard a beautiful marshal last week. When you're driving in your car at night, then you need to turn the lights out in the car so you can get what's going on outside the car with lights coming from there. And so the Rebbe said, if it's light inside your car, you won't see the darkness outside. But when it's dark inside your car, the kids will look for the light outside. So it needs to be inside light. It needs to be excitement so that they won't be attracted to the outside. When it's, when it's lacking inside, the kids are going to be attracted to outside. Looking elsewhere, everywhere but inside. Right. One last question for you. Do you see the same issue in Eretz Yisrael, for example, in the Beis Yaakovs or whatever other schools that would be comparable uh, that we are some some places, some teachers not focused enough on the simcha side of things and more based on the rules and the don't do, lolosases as opposed to the assays. Unfortunately, I think you, you're correct. I hear from my daughters who have been through the system that when they bring in a speaker who's dynamic and excited about Yiddishkeit, they're attracted to it. But when all, when they hear too often about the rules and the color exactly of how exactly the tights need to be and so on, even if you are, if, even if you believe that, yeah, the, the tights need to be a certain color, let's say, you can argue about that, but let's say, but if, when that's the focus and that's every other speech by the principal is about that and everything else is Minor, they lost it. And the focus, again, needs to be the excitement of the Yiddishkeit. When you hear Rabbi Uncle Galinsky, if you read his books and you hear him talking, he's excited, he's on fire, his Yiddishkeit's alive. It's not a book, textbook thing, it's not a rule book, it's life. They need to see that, that it's exciting, Shabbos is exciting. Um, davening needs to be exciting, not something that you have to do and you forced to do and it needs to take this long and you have to have this facial expression of fighting a wind tunnel that's not davening that's not what it's supposed to be it's supposed to be talking to Hashem nicely and he wants to hear you and your problems he wants to hear as well when girls hear that or people anybody the boy or girl they say you know what this is this talks to me this maybe I can have something to do with this as well very beautiful. Rabbi Ashraf, I want to thank you so much for joining us. A lot of tremendous insights really came through and uh Hashem it'll have an impact. Oh, uh, oh, thank you for everything you do in your godless of spreading Toyota to, to the masses is amazing. Thank you so much. A pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzhak Schwartz. Rabbi Schwartz is the Rav of the Orchus Chaim community in Givat Zev, which is near Yerushalayim. He spent 15 years in the kollel of Yeshiva Torah Or and was a close Talmud and a Musmach of Rav Scheinberg Zatzal. He was actually the Mashkiach Ruchani of Torah Or. Rabbi Schwartz wears a number of hats, one of which is Paskning Shailas for Kesher Nafshi, which is an organization that provides support and guidance for parents with children who are struggling with Yiddishkeit. Rabbi Schwartz, Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. 
Hopefully it'll be a toilet. There's always a toilet speaking with you, Rabbi Schwartz. Always a toilet. If we could start with definitions, and this may be a little bit difficult. Oftentimes we hear about kids at risk, and today maybe we're talking about that, maybe we're not talking about that. Really the focus is talking about young ladies, could be in high school, could be in seminaries, and really there are some that from on the outside lacking on the inside. It could be to the extent that they don't even believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So if you can give us the definitions, what does that risk mean? What is not inspired mean? Are those two different categories? And how often, how common would you say these categories are? I think it's important to make just make a HaKadoma that the most natural thing in the world is for a child to be like their parents. Just like they look like them physically, and many of their character traits will be born, they'll be born with character traits that are similar to their parents. As they grow up, the ones they adopt, there's nature and nurture, and that's, it's natural and it's positive as long as everything going around them is positive also. Um, can you imagine if one day your child woke, woke up, and all of a sudden, and she was the spitting image of your wife, and she wakes up one morning, and she looks like somebody else completely. Her face changed totally. So right away, you run to the doctor, neurologist, something out of something bizarre has happened here. The same is true in Ruchnivs, and the same is true in emotions. If we observe uh, changes, significant changes in the behavior of our children, as in, in our discussion of girls, their relationship with Hashem, their relationship with their parents, relationship between themselves and themselves, maybe they're uh, staying up all night and doing things they never did before, and they're slowly but surely becoming dissimilar from the home that they grew up in, that means something is wrong. Something's going on. Something is going on. And it's really important to know that uh, intervention is a very dangerous thing. Like, how do we deal with these kids is, a, is very dangerous. The best intervention, when we don't fully understand what's going on, why things have changed, why things have veered from their natural course, to intervene without that knowledge is disaster. The best intervention, close mind that we don't know for sure what's going on, have a full understanding of what's going on, is no intervention. Actually, no intervention is also an intervention, because then it gives us the ability to sit back and try and understand what's happened here. As we're going through it, the, these type of uh, girls that we're talking about, they made their pre-at-risk, at-risk, crisis, whatever mode they're we're going to talk about. Uh, it, it sometimes happens over a period of time, and we just get from one stage to another, get used to it. And all of a sudden, when we're at a crisis stage, and we think, okay, now I need to react. But you didn't connect the dots. When it started. What started this? What happened six months ago, or a year ago, or two years ago, that led to this situation right now? So the first thing is, it's normal and natural for our children to be like us, and to want to be like us. And if it's not going in that direction, we need to be observant Jews. That's the first thing we need to to. to uh, uh, take on for ourselves is we need to understand a full understanding of what's going on as much as possible. Not reacting, but understanding what brought this about. Oh, very good. Okay, so let's get to the definitions of at risk, not inspired. Are those the same things? Are they those different things? Good question. I think anybody who has having struggling with emuna in a spiritual world is at risk. Let's take it from the uh, the character traits, what we would call midas. If you didn't eat all day long, and when you went to sleep at night, you were still hungry, and you didn't sleep very well at night, partly because you were hungry, probably because you were very upset about something or worried about something, and you get up the next day, so you're underfed, underslept, stressed out, and you need to take a long drive. Are you at high risk of having an accident? Absolutely, because there's imbalance in your system. So the same is true in the spiritual realm. If we are out of sync, our spiritual realm is out of sync with the environment that we live in, we're at major risk. 
because there's only a, a, a short amount of time a person can live, can live with such cognitive dissonance and emotional dissonance and remain sane, remain stable, remain predictable. You're being pulled in different directions. Your inner world is torturing you and your outer world is demanding from you and you're, you're going to be cracked. And that's when we see the kids start doing things that are different. Uh, so from on the outside, uninspired on the inside, it would depend on what the uninspired mean. But if it's a lack of a muna, then we're already at risk or maybe in crisis. That's that's for sure crisis mode. I, anybody in the world who doesn't have a muna, in my opinion, is in crisis mode. Either something horrible will happen in his life and there's no atheist in a foxhole, or he'll use it as proof that he's it's good he was an atheist because why does God do bad things to good people? And it's, it's the breaking point. So anybody without a muna is at risk of losing his oilum. So do we have clear lines for categorizing young ladies, young men, it could be as well, somebody who's at risk, or these are difficult definitions and difficult lines to make? Yeah, I think the minute you begin to observe different uh, behavior than what was it was till now, what, you, what your house was set up to be, and what maybe other children in the house are like, or what you expected them, and you've, let's say it's not your first one, or even if it's the first one, but all the other kids are going to yeshivas and sems and everything is fine, and this one is different. Doing things that are maybe pro slightly provocative, pushing the line in their dress, in their speech, and the type of music that they listen to. So are those children at risk? Absolutely. They're more than at risk. They're already expressing, they're exposing the turmoil that's going on in them. What's the cause of it? Lack of inspiration? It could be. could be lack of inspiration. We, could, we should talk about that. But it could also be something traumatizing happened in their life, uh, physical, emotional, spiritual. There, remember recently there was a young lady who um, she's in, the, in the deeply in crisis mode today. And one of the things that triggered it off, where she was fine, was that uh, she uh, was approached by the Mechanechis about some issue that was going on in school. And the Mechanechis was asking, you know, what do you think about it to the girls? Whatever this troubling situation was. And I guess she was using it as an educational moment to see if the girls could uh, understand and respond and maybe straighten things out. So she addressed one particular girl and she said, well, I don't know what to think. So Mechanechis who thought she, I guess she was a Rashka Bahaga, maybe she didn't sleep the night before. She said, well, may, this is a sem for girls who think. If you don't know how to think, maybe it's not your place. And she said it in front of the other girls. In front of all the girls. That was such a hashpola. Since then, she's never been the same. So that, that's a trauma. That's, that's a, trauma. a trauma. That's a spiritual trauma. It's emotional trauma. It was. It had major impact on her life and it took her off course. Completely off course. Now, but you would think, you know, maybe it's a little thing. But there are people who have very sensitive uh, you know, emotional makeup and a slight remark for what we, for us, we could like like a duck. It's like water off the duck's back, right? Some people, it's like a dagger in their heart. And if it's a young girl and it's done berabim when there's hashpola, she's quite likely to start disconnecting from school. When she starts disconnecting to school, she connects to other things. When she connects to other things, they're probably not always good things. So if we don't understand what happened, what was the beginning of it, we think, well, she's just involved in bad stuff. You just need Musa. Right. We've lost her. Right. Now, in the absence of a trauma like that, we do have some young ladies who are simply not inspired. They don't have a muna, and maybe they don't daven at all. Would you say that those are young ladies in the absence of trauma who have been turned off, or simply they've never Ever been turned on by the day school, by the Beis Yaakov, or whatever other high school that they are attending? Well, yeah, I think it's those who are never turned on is a big uh, numbers. I don't know. There's a lot of people who are never turned on. They're just going through the system. So that's fine as long as everything goes well. But if they hit a bump in the road, a tough interaction with the school or with the parents or with friends, and they were never turned on, so what's going to hold on to them now? Or when they get out of school and they don't have or the when structure. when they get out of school, then, it's, then they're total free, totally free agents. Why are they not inspired? I don't know. When you're around an inspired person, it's usually inspiring. But, but, you know, uh, my wife and I have raised not a small number of children in our house. 
It was very fascinating to me to hear in later years their experiences, what it was, what it felt like growing up in our house. I need to hear from my grown-up children. I wanted to hear what was it like. So more than one of them expressed their dissatisfaction with Shalshudas in the house. That was always like not their favorite time. For some of them, why not? The Nigunim. At the time, when I was in my younger years uh, in uh, Koilo, I was very connected with Dvekistik and Nigunim. And for the little kids, it wasn't good. For those particular children, it wasn't good. It was, it was sad. It was them. slow. It was boring. It was slow. And maybe was the it? lights were dim. At, I don't remember how we had it at home in the beginning. And uh, by association, they were not connected with Shalshudas. They didn't like Shalshudas because of Nigunim. On the other hand, there were other kids, same family, same table, who did connect to it. So it's important to know that different, th- different people connect in different ways. And if we don't learn, if we don't recognize that and respect to and relate to each one as an individual, we're always going to lose somebody. And that's the problem in, in schools. You could have great teachers and they could even be inspired, but they're inspired. Everybody's different. Everybody's different. For one person, she was the light of, of her lifetime. That Mechanetas was the light of her life, a pillar of inspiration because she, her neshama resonated with the way that, that Mechanetas neshama resonated. But there, I guarantee you, there's in the same class other girls that didn't not at all connect, not because they had problems, but because they are different inside. They have a different neshama. They connect in different ways. Not in the way that teacher did. She was gewaltig. So nobody's guilty, but it's a reality, which if you're a parent, you have, you have to be aware of it. All the teachers should be aware of it. Maybe they can have a different way of connecting. You have to click. You have to click. It's more than just click. There, there's there's a, an organic uh, reality in the neshamas of every year. Everybody comes from a different root. We're all connected in the same, let's say, tree, but some are closer to the leaves, some are closer to the fruit, some are closer to the blossoms, some are closer to the stems, some are closer to the trunk, and they resonate differently with different people, with different characters, with different parts of the Yiddishkeit itself. I would, I don't think I could ever be a, a, a volunteer for Hatzalah. I don't think I could do it. I'm, I don't know, the side of blood and everything, that's not for me. But there's some people who thrive on that. They thrive on it. And if you take that person and say, no, we're going to just learn with you it's all day long. Gonna work. It's not going to work. It doesn't mean something's bad with the person. It doesn't mean he's ADHD. It might be. But it, doesn't, it means we have to look and see who this person really is, how he connects, and try and focus in on the way he connects and bring him from that point, that good point that he has, keep him connected to us as close as we can right. and help him develop that. Right. So when we have an uninspired boy, we can sometimes see maybe he doesn't come to Minyan, maybe he comes 15 minutes late to Minyan, cuts corners here and there. When you have a young lady who's not inspired, what are some of the indications that uh, something may be lacking on the inside? She doesn't want to dive in. At all, yeah. Right, because she's uh, got all sorts of hetarian. Well, they, girls don't have to daven, and they and they just don't want to talk to their bunch of them. Again, the most natural thing, it's natural. Even the kfirim, they, they, the, the lion cubs, when they're hungry, they call out to their bunch of them. It's natural. A person should want to talk to Hashem. Should want to speak to Hashem. If they don't want to, there's a reason they don't want to. So what Something do we do? Happened. What do we maybe do? They, maybe it was an Amuna crisis that the a father or somebody close to them was sick, and they prayed and prayed and prayed, and it didn't work out. And they never revealed that to you, that they're totally disappointed in Hashem. Or maybe it's because the common, you know, we've seen it all, many times in shuls, the mother wants to rest on Shabbos, sleep late, father has to go to shuls, so he takes his kids who have no shyness to davening with him, and uh, how are you going to keep them from disturbing other people? So you keep popping, yeah, you keep popping sweets into their mouths, right? So it makes them more hyper, and they have to keep popping more sweets in their mouth, and they start disturbing people because they're getting more hyper, their sugar levels is zooming to, to, to the ceiling, and then you expect that kid to have a good attitude towards davening in shul. Later on, Chaim Kinevsky, that's all right, and Shaina Lochas, that you're ruining the kid's chance for having a positive 
positive connection with Shul and Davening, taking kids to Davening at a time when it's not appropriate for them, where they can't connect in a meaningful way through the Davening itself, or the father who's really mocked on his son. He says, no, 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 look inside, look inside, puts in his fingers and keeps him there, or, and or keeps him there too long. It's a punishment. So it's Davening, Shul is a punishment, so why should they want to go? So the same thing can happen to a, to a girl, that uh, it, it maybe didn't happen in Shul in the same way. Maybe once she went with her mother, maybe the kids were taunting her. Um, like I say, maybe in the school, when she wasn't Davening the way the teacher saw she should Davening, maybe she really wasn't, because she didn't understand the davening. And they spoil her future for, for davening. So halakhically, what do we do when we have a young lady, doesn't want to daven, do we say to her, you have a chiyuv to daven, but cut it down? Just say the shmona no, no, no. First we find out why she doesn't want to daven. If she doesn't want to daven because she's lacking in emunah, so we suggest to her, would you like to l- learn something with me on the holy of emunah? Would you like to learn something with me about tefillah? Say kriya shmona in the morning and the night. Because that's kriya shmona. That's enough. That's enough. But if, she's, if we're going to start enforcing davening on her, which is the most primus of all avoidus is davening, of avoidus should believe. So if she got other things going on, other trauma or pain that she experienced, and now you're going into the deepest part of her being, that's her heart, and you're telling her, this is what your heart needs to be doing. That's that's intrusive. That's abusive. So such a girl, we need to find out where's, where's the entry point to speak to her about it. Where's her problem? So get the root cause of what's going on. Get the root cause and say, how would, would you like to work on this with me? Or find her a teacher who would help you work on it? But if we just enforce the law, it's just like enforcing, it's another form of maltreatment. <laughs> and, and it makes things worse. And how about learning? If somebody doesn't want to learn, young girl doesn't want to learn. Is there something that I believe in Talmud Torah? What does she have to learn for? Once I asked my Rebbe, Chaim Pinchas Sheinberg, the Tzadik Kodesh the girls, I have a bunch of girls also. They read, you know, they read books, you know, fiction books. So I, I, uh, I objected to it, not to my girls, but it bothered me. They're reading fiction books. I mean, there's nothing to gain from a fiction book. My wife makes fun of me. Of course, it's to, to gain from a fiction book. But yeah, you know, I don't. I never read fiction. I, I don't know if I ever did read fiction. Maybe once when I was a young kid, but that doesn't appeal to me has to be real for me. But for other people, it's just a form of relaxation, and they enjoy it, it's pleasure, and maybe they can learn from it something also. So, but the girls were doing it a lot more than the boys, because the boys have Mishnah Ha'estachazer, and Ha'estachazer, and they have a, a big library. So I saw him, so I asked him, really, isn't this a problem of Moshe Vleitzim? What's the difference between this and what it says in Shulchan Aruch and Shabbos, going to the bullfights, or going to... What's the difference? It's a book. What's the difference? It's 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 it's, Shusim. it's not Lohoi of Lenivu. It's, it's, so he said to him, right, he said, if they use their time for something that's just pleasure for them, that's not a Moshe Blatzen. They're just having a good time. If you're Mechuyiv and you're playing pool instead, or reading the comics, that's a Moshe Blatzen. So, you know, girls that uh, uh, want to spend their time doing other stuff, there's not a problem. If we try and take them away from them and say, no, you have to learn Moshe, you have to learn Tanah. Why don't you pick up a book about a God or an Isha Cheshuv or something? They don't want to. They want to learn fiction. Let them learn fiction. Sometimes the way to connect to those girls and boys, and for that matter, is is not to reading and not to learning. It's to doing. Let's go help the family next door. Let's do some chesed. Let's do some bikur chaylim. Why is that less ruchni than than learning a sefer, doing bikur chaylim? Right. That, that's very wise. But how about if that individual, that young girl who is not inspired, not davening, not learning, is having a negative impact on the class? You have a class. You have time for davening, and she's not doing it. You have a girl in seminary. Everyone's getting up to daven, and she's not there. And people see that. People see that, and that could rub off on them. Is that something that we should deal with? Who's the we? Who's the we? Let's say the parents or the teachers. Yeah, most of us have a different, uh, you know, I, I can't speak about most of us. Most of us have a, a mission, they have a mandate, and it's always going to be a, somehow compromising some individuals in the class because you can't make perfectly uh, um, custom tailored chinuch for every girl if there are 30, 40, 50 girls in the class, or boys for that matter. There's always going to be, you know, the bottom 20%, the top 20%, and then the 60% in the middle, and how much of them can we catch? How much of them can we connect with? So the Moisad has to make their decisions what their mission is in that community. 
if it doesn't fit, let's talk about so that somebody's going to somebody's going to end up getting shortchanged. That's for sure. Only a genius of a mechanic could handle every single kid in class and give them what they need and connect them in a positive way. We don't have many mechanics like that. I couldn't do that in a class of 20 or 30. I don't know if I could do it in a class of 15 even. Maybe with 10 I could do it. I'm not, even that I'm not sure about. The minute we start dealing with the rabbin, you, rabbin means compromise. How do we know this? The Torah says, how do you teach your children? Uh, the father is, teaches the son. In the case of the girls, it kind of comes from home. The mother, the father also. Where does this idea of school come from? Until now, everybody learned from their parents. The father taught the child the Torah. And after a while, though, so he saw that it wasn't possible. Not everybody's father could teach him, or not everybody had a father. And he, he made the tachon of, of schools. But you see, it grew up out of a bedevit situation, because nobody knows your child, and nobody's more capable, theoretically, of focusing on the individual's needs, that particular child's needs, than the parents. So the Torah puts it on the parents. That's the ikachuv. It's not possible for most of us to listen to Moses. Moses is a bedevit. By, by nature, I'm Moses is a bedevit. It's a bedevit for our generation, though. Because we, most people cannot teach their kids on their own, and homeschooling is is a huge challenge, and it's also can be socially awkward for the children not to have connections with other children. So it's not an changed. option for ninety nine percent of the times people. have changed. Though. So you have to expect you send your children to school, and the mechanchim knows also we're not going to connect in a meaningful way with every child. If they begin to disturb the other people, then they have to work with them as a moisad. How do we deal with God? Does she fit the mandate of our class of our school? If she completely doesn't, then we have to uh, we have to intervene and say, look, you could stay here, but if you're really bothering stuff, you should know there's there's a cost involved. Whatever that cost it is, the, the motion has to decide. But to throw kids out is not an exit. Right. So let's talk about parents. If a parent sees a child that is not being bekayim mitzvahs, and we could talk about not saying brachas before eating, not coming to Shabbos meals, not coming to Sudash Lishis, not davening, or a child who is involved in Isurim. Those two different questions. Two different questions, two different questions. Maybe they're treated the same, maybe treated differently. And, uh, uh, and, and one is the ones who are not participating. So again, right, not participating in, in mitzvahs. In, in the, they're coming, not coming to kiddush. They're not coming to the suda. They're not coming to the seder. Now, I would divide that into things. They're not coming to suda shlishis. No, God the babishes also don't go to suda shlishis. Not the end of the world. Maybe they're uninspired because of what's going on at the table. Uh, if they're not coming to the lela seder, I mean, none from people go to seder. That shows us the kid is in crisis mode. Doesn't want to be at your shabbos table, at your seder table. There's a deep crisis in there, in that girl's heart. It's not just a girl, but a boy also. And again, then you have to find out, okay, what happened? The, you can't intervene and say, you got to come to the, to the table. And if they do come to the table, you think, oh, you see, we, we corrected the problem. With a scowl on the face. <laughs> yeah, even if they come down with the sun, they're good fakers. There are kids who are good fakers. And there are enough parents who don't want to see what you could see if they'd look deeper. And they just don't see it. The kid's trying to avoid conflict with the parents. So he or she comes to the table just to avoid the conflict. And then a year or two years later or six months later, you find they're out to... Uh, Doing things that are totally unacceptable. So, it, if it's it's if it's very uh, if if it differs in a in a very stark way from what's normal behavior in that house, not coming to to say, I heard recently about a girl. She refused to come to the seder. Parents were in total shock. She wouldn't come down. She was in the house. Nothing else to do. She wouldn't come to the seder. She's in deep crisis. That's more than a red flag. Right. I don't know if that answered the question. Whoa. So, so what do you do? So, what do you do? Oh, so what do you do again? The best thing, the first step is no intervention is the best intervention. We need to sit back, develop dialogue, deepen the relationship with them so they can feel open enough, open enough to reveal what's going on with them without being judgmental. Once we understand, maybe we weren't totally unaware that something really horrible happened in the last year or two years ago or three years ago or four years ago. She's been keeping her mouth shut all the time. Maybe she's been told to keep her mouth shut and she was suffering the whole time. And now it just is a brain. So we 
got to understand what's going on. And the only way we're going to understand is if they want to speak with us. And the only way they're going to want to speak with us if they trust us. And the only way they trust us is if we show them that we're non-judgmental. We're not here to punish you or control you. Control is a big issue. Mm-hmm. If they feel they're going to be controlled by the parents in order to please the parents or fulfill their expectations, there's no chance of developing dialogue. They'll just say, Tati, you will never understand me. Right. And how about if the kids are involved in Yisurim? It seems like maybe we would say the same thing. Then. If they're already doing Yisurim and they're doing it in a way they're not hiding, or even they are hiding it, um, they're not in crisis. They're overboard already. They took the jump already. That means something really, really bad happened in the background. They had deep trauma from something, somebody, again, it could be emotional, spiritual, physical, in Enyoni Kedusha. People don't jump off the boat for no reason. We don't have any philosophical apicorsim anymore. The proof is, that, of course, and we used to have, even the ones who did, Jumbo was because of Aeneas, and then they became professors, doctors, lawyers, businessmen. But the kids today who are jumping off, they're becoming bums, most of them, not doing nothing meaningful with their lives. Not all of them. There are a few that go and they turn themselves into something, what the world would call productive, but most of them not. Most of them just hang out, get involved in drugs, get involved in nonsense, mm-hmm. negative, other negative behaviors, and they leave the Yiddish guy behind, they end up finding a girl or a boy, and they... They're lost forever. Right. right. So l- let's have another question then. You have a, a child that may be dabbling in Isurim. Certainly the parent has certain concerns. For example, maybe not eating kosher and the like. And the child asks for money. And the parent knows it's going to go for a very short skirt, maybe even to get a hidden tattoo or something like that. Does the parent give money or does that get into an issue of control then? We're not going to give you the money. That's maybe, a very, very good. Maybe just don't give it and don't state the reason. Or how, how do you handle that situation? Reason. Of course, we're talking about here obviously somebody who's not at the age of what's called yilchinuch. Somebody's already borrowed bas mitzvah. The no, child. I'm talking about over borrowed bas mitzvah. Yeah, at least yeah. borrowed bas mitzvah. Yeah. Nothing about chinuch. So chinuch is finished. The formal halacha uh, um, of the chiyuv chinuch of the, of the father is over at the bar of bas mitzvah. And the father at the bar mitzvah will get up there and say, the bracha, some hold it even shame, mavus, bosh, pterani, manshashalazeh. So I often ask parents who have struggling kids who are teenagers, tell me, it's a boy. They say, did you at the bar mitzvah say, bosh, pterani, manshashalazeh? I said, yeah. I said, do you believe what you said? You believe it's your responsibility? There's no, you're not going to suffer for his, his sins now. You're not going to suffer. He said, ah, but there's a mitzvah to Hecha. So then I ask him, do you know how to be machiach in a way that the person can hear it? The Gemara says, we don't have anybody left who knows how to be machiach. So you're not chayv and chinuch. Because he's not at the age where he's high and chinuch. You're not responsible to him because you don't know how to mechirch. It's not a judgment. Uh, I'm not being judgmental. We all, none of us know, especially with our own children, but there's uh, emotions involved and, and anger and uh, frustration and disappointment. We don't know how to mechirch our children. So if you are mechirch your child and he's not capable of hearing it, you're going to make the situation worse. Absolutely. So I'm assuming that if the young girl or boy, He's uh, already passed bar mitzvah, bar bas mitzvah, and they want to do something that's also. So what's your options now? No, this is also al piyalocha. You think the kid doesn't know it's also al piyalocha? I have to give him tochecha. Or do you know how to do that? Is he capable of hearing it? So the portion is not. Now the question is, okay, but am I facilit- facilitating it by giving them money? So that's a complicated halacha question. If there's a problem of lifnei iver, that without your money, there's no way that this kid is going to get this. It's impossible for him to get the tattoo, let's say in the case of the tattoo. So then you're not allowed to give him the money because you're directly facilitating it. But if the kid's going to do it anyway, and I guarantee you they're going to do it anyway. They'll find a way. They'll find a way to get it done. So what are they going to come out with? They come out of the tattoo parlor with a tattoo on the arm. And my, part of the tattoo might be how much they hate their father, right? How much they hate um, They can come out with a blemish in their body and a bigger negative hole in their heart for the for the father. On the other hand, if the, they do give him the money, which according to the that we are saying, the person who's on the Binyan Tzian, also in the shop, that if you if there's no leaf neighbor and 
you're not giving the money at a time or involved in the action at a time when the issue takes place. There's not even an issue of Messiah. The question asked the Binyan Tzion was there was only one publishing house in the area. How to publish a safer? That there, there were Jewish workers, Jewish workers in the factory, in the printing house. Can you print a safer Kurdish in that? Uh, you're not going to give it to them on Shabbos. You give it to them ahead of time. But you know they're going to work. It takes weeks to, to print the safer. They're going to be hidden working on it. So he says there's no leaf neighbor because they're going to be working anyway. Whether you give your safer or not, they're going to work on somebody else's book or safer. And uh, Messiah, there's no Isa Messiah that you're assisting in the Isa. Because it's a Durban. It's a so you can be Messiah lenient. Besides, no, not because of the Durban, you can be lenient. No, there is no Isa Messiah if it's not Shah's at the same time. Yeah, no, it's not really. That doesn't apply to Leaf Naive or the Durites. It only applies that Shah yeah. when it's a Durban. Right. Isa Messiah. Yeah, Isa Messiah was not Shah's. So in the case of the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the uh, tattoo. So you're not going to. You know, the, give the kid the credit card. You can give him a credit card. So when you gave the credit card, it's not the Shasta Abeya. Or you can give her cash. What are you gaining by that? Not a, a lot, but you're not doing damage. You might gain something. You actually might gain something. It says, well, my father's not trying to control me. And if that en- enters the mind for one second, maybe there'll be a pesach later on. Again and again, you show them that you're not trying to control them, that they'll open up to you. Right. Build that relationship. Build the relationship. So, Rabbi Schwartz, one last question for you. How do we inspire the youths nowadays? This is, the, I guess, the million-dollar question, because the challenges abound. And obviously, you've said that we have to relate to each child in its proper way. Are there ways that have been more successful in inspiring the young ladies, and maybe young men as well? well women are naturally more ruchni than men are. The says, They're natural. They have natural connection with the Rabbeinu Shalom. The Maral says, why Dafka from the Basula? What about after she gets married? There'd be a lot of tzaddikas. Because we can learn for sure from a basula. Once she gets married, it's going to go in the direction of her husband more, more often than not. But the nature, if you want to learn from natural things, something has a, a, a relationship with Hashem in a natural way, it's a, a young girl. So we have to know that it's there. It's not something that we have to uh, you know, reinvent the wheel. They have it naturally. But we have to know that, just like we said before, they connect in different ways. Some will connect through chesed. Some will connect through nigunim. Uh, uh, some will connect through machshova. But We've institutionalized spirituality, so everybody's on the same system, and everybody's ex- the same expectations of everybody, and the connection for everybody has got to be the same. What is it? What is a Hasidic boy? Let's go to Hasidim. What does a Hasidic boy do? Who's let's say you know like a brainiac? He doesn't have any connection to the tish. He's not into nigunim. He's not that social. He's somewhere along the spectrum. And what does he have? He has his Hasidic lavush and all the minhogim that they have, and he doesn't have a connection on the on the emotional social le- level. Is he going to thrive? He definitely will not thrive. Well, let's say in the, uh, the literature institutions, more yeshiva institutions, and there's no other outlet besides learning. Or let's say in the, many of the sems that are here in Eretz for the American girls who come over, the English girls who come over, it's totally academic. And they're not. I know a young lady who, she was in one of these sems, quite academic, and she couldn't connect. The Menial, I don't want to go into too many details, was a very bright person, very uh, apparently a very excellent mechanic. And I went to speak to him about for this particular girl that they were coming down harsh on her. That she, she felt she wasn't welcome there. This Manal said, she's not for learning. She needs to get married to have a lot of babies. And he was right. He was absolutely right. She got married. She had a beautiful family with lots of children and she takes care of other children. But today, you know, it's not looked upon uh, nicely. Been, uh, let's say, Sam, that's really Sam. You know, every girl is very much encouraged to go into uh, high tech. Why not high tech? Because you have to support your husband so he can learn. But maybe she has her own spiritual. She loves little children. She wants to connect on that level, make a meaningful impact on little children. It's going to be the next generation of Amiso. The boys are not looking for Ganinot today because they want a Parnasa. So once we institutionalize it, and everybody's got to be the same, we lose out a huge percentage of really deeply connected people 
the Yiddishkeit in the, in the Ruchnius way. They might still function as Yidden, but they're at risk. Those people are definitely at risk. Anybody's not inspired, they're at risk because one win comes or two win comes or three win comes or one crack in their, in their, in their life comes and they were never connected to begin with. Why should they get more connected now? So the way to inspire the guys, how do the Moises do it? I don't know. I'm not, I don't have a Moises for girls, but I think every Mechaneches, every Mechanech, every parent has to know our children are different and find the ways in their Metzias, in their character, in their individuality, how does they connect in a positive way? And it's, it's, it's not like looking for a needle in a haystack. But if what we're looking for is how do they fit in to the expectations of the Moises and the communities and the way spirituality is, plays itself out in most in that community, we're likely to miss it. But this is a big issue. I mean, the one size fits all chinuch, which is the way chinuch is done nowadays. No individuality. The, the Rizal, by the way, uh, he said there were 12. It was revealed to him, obviously, by the know. There were 12 nuschos of tefillah originally, one for each shaver. Each one had a different, different nuschah of tefillah. And if you're from that, a different, a shev, any particular shaver, and you dab in somebody else's nusach from a different shaver, it's not miskabel. It's not miskabel. So, so the reason, what do we do today? A person doesn't know what, what shaver he came from, and we don't even have the 12 nusachot. So the reason came up with a nusach. It's a nusach, not the, what Chabad calls nusach Ari, but uh, with the Mukubalim have it, and the, the Sephardim is closer to the nusach of the Adotam Um he said, this Nusach is good for all the Shvatim. All the Shvatim. But I'm just bringing this as an example of the emesis. The emesis, the connection with HaKadosh Baruch is different for everybody. And if we try and force one, like you said, one shoe fits all, we're definitely going to lose tens of percentages. Not 10%. Tens of percentages. How much will we lose? What does it mean lose also? It doesn't mean that it'll become fry necessarily. But they won't be inspired. And you know, if you don't have inspired parents, the chances your children will be inspired are very low. Right. And that's, I think, you know, that's the best we can do right now. Not to rely on moistus. Moistus are, like, they're very challenged. Budget challenged. Numbers challenged. Um, how many really top-notch educators do we have today? All wonderful people going to, but they're like the really brilliant ones. There was a, was a Mechanech in Yerushalayim, the big Moistus, passed away. I don't want to mention his name, but he was quite a famous person. And I went to watch him teach once, because my kid was in his class. And I heard so much about it. And uh, I was mesmerized by him. He was teaching first grade. Mesmerized by him. He had them eating out of his hands. Every kid was completely focused on him. Forget, no discipline problems. It wasn't a shine of a discipline problem. Everybody was completely concentrating and in that ribbon. So I asked him afterwards, I, he said, that, what, what did you see? I said, okay, you had them full attention for the entire hour, whatever the class was going. I asked him, how do you do that? He says, because I have, he answered me. So I have constant eye contact with every single one of them all the time. Don't tell me how, don't ask me how he did it. He says, everybody felt that he was looking at them, each individual kid looking straight at them all the time. <laughs> eye to eye. Quite a eye to eye. So Quite you can't expect that from most of the But from you... parents, you can't expect that. Look at your children in the eyes when you talk to them. Beautiful. 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 Rabbi Schwartz, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank really pleasure. terrific. Such insights and such important lessons. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Should be us. Joining us now is Rebetzin Etzi Hamilton. Rebetzin Hamilton is a teacher, a spiritual mentor, and also a religious leader for thousands of girls and women across the globe, probably tens of thousands at this point. Originally from London, she recently relocated to Florida, and she is continuing to educate the young ladies and the women locally and throughout the world. Rebetzin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited. You have a lot of experience, be it with the younger women, with the older women, Kiruv, Kiruv Krovim, Kiruv Rechokim. How would you say, and let's focus on women, that's your expertise, and let's focus on those who grew up from, how would you say we are doing with imbuing, let's say high school girls with strong values and beliefs? And also practices. And, and I think maybe a good way to look at this is after they finish going through the system, 
They've had their chinuch. They've gone through elementary school. They've gone through high school, maybe seminary. They've gone through seminary. How do they continue after that? Do they continue davening, learning? Do they continue to have a connection with the Kaddish Baruch Hu? Or does it get challenging when they get out of the structure environment of our chinuch system? Um, this is such a great question um, because I think that the way that we teach young girls and young women about Yiddishkeit is that we, um, especially in within a school structure, within a seminary structure, there's lots of prescribed Yiddishkeit. Like this is the time that we daven and this is the time that we learn and this is the time that we do everything. And then um, they get their free time or they go to university or they go to work. And the question is, do they continue doing all these things without the structure of it? And the answer is, sadly, um, many girls and women don't do this. Um, many women, once they come out of seminary, since they don't have the mitzvah of um, learning every moment of every day, they stop their learning and sometimes they stop learning altogether. Um, and they don't have to be in a minion. And do they have to daven? And is anyone telling them, they're telling them that they have to daven? No, they aren't. So often, women um, stop learning and stop davening and they just get, go into the working world or they go into the un university and college and only those people who continue to inspire themselves um, they continue to do all these things and if they're not inspiring themselves then they have no structure within to do this and this is I think a huge failing of our chinuch system, um, where we don't give the ownership of Yiddishkeit to the girls and women. And I think it's also very difficult. I think for men, it's much easier because they have to be with a minion three times a day and they have to learn Torah every spare minute they have. There. And so they have a kind of structure in place, even if once they leave yeshiva, um, they have this kind of community of all the men doing this together. And for women, it isn't like this. And it's a massive issue because as women get older, um, especially if they stay single longer, and they spent many years no longer inspiring themselves, they can lose their enthusiasm for Yiddishkeit altogether. And it becomes less and less, they become less and less committed because they're less and less inspired. So how do we go about educating them when they're in a structured environment so they can survive and thrive when they get into an unstructured environment? That that must be a tremendous chinuch challenge. It is a huge chinuch challenge. Um, one of the ways, I think, I think one of the ways that women stay connected to Yiddishkeit more than anything else is through personal tefillah. Um, that means not tefillah in a shul, not communal tefillah, but really personal tefillah. That means their siddur can go with them everywhere they go. And therefore, I think they should be most inspired to own their own tefillah, um, to be connected to davening. And I see this in high schools that they have lots of um, classes on Chumash or Novi or, um, you know, other other very important svarim, but they have very few classes on tefillah, the importance of tefillah, how, you know, it's, it's owned in Baruch Olam, that's what we know about tefillah, and yet um, lots of women don't feel connected, and I think a lot of the reason is lots of lots of the girls and women don't understand what they're davening, they don't understand the translation, um, they don't feel connected to it, or they don't feel they don't feel that their davening actually impacts their lives, they don't have um, evidence of it, or perhaps they've joined Tehillim groups for davening for some D, and then it didn't work out that person was nifter in the end. There's lots of, maybe there's much more evidence for them to show that their tefillah didn't work rather than their tefillah did work. Um, this has this is very connected to the feeling that we all have nowadays of I'm in control of my own life. So anything that good that happens to me, it's because that I went out and did it. And anything bad that happens to me, Hashem did it. Um, this is the Hashkofic, I think the Hashkofic break, breakdown um, of communication, meaning we have to be teaching everybody that all the good things in our life, 
comes directly from Hashem. Uh, my family, my talents, my, you know, that I get into university, that I have a job, that I have friends, that I'm able to wake up in the morning healthy. This isn't um, something normal or natural. This is a gift from Hashem. But we don't feel like it's a gift from Hashem. We feel like, well, it's because I chose to apply for this job, or it's because I, you know, worked very hard, so I passed my exams, or it's because of my own Bechira choices that I managed to make my, build for myself a good life. And then when bad things happen, uh, or, or seemingly bad things happen, you lose the job, or you don't get into the college you wanted, or, you know, you suddenly wake up ill, you think, why do bad things happen to good people? I'm a good person. Why is Hashem not giving me everything I want? As if my whole life, Hashem has not given me everything. The last 20, 30, 40, 50, however many, however old you are, however many years you have, Hashem has given you actual life, like the breath in your in your body. And we don't see it that way. So we don't see the good things in our life as coming directly from Hashem. And we do see the bad things in our life coming from Hashem um, because we didn't make that happen. That happened to us. Um, and because of this, we have a skewed vision of, of how uh, powerful our tefillah is or our relationship with Hashem. And therefore, it seems that um, what does it matter if I talk to Hashem or not? It seems irrelevant or seems to have no impact on my life because I can't see it directly. And I think that um, the first thing that women have to start owning is really their own tefillah, i.e., how do I speak to Hashem? How many times a day do I speak to Hashem? How am I connected to Hashem throughout my day? The Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Tomid part um, has to be the beginning, I think, of real relationship with Hashem and therefore real relationship with Torah and Mitzvahs. Now, you started out speaking about the struggles in practice, in ritual. For example, girls, women not continuing to dive in and not continuing to learn, not having that connection. And then you talked about what sounded like struggles with emuna, with struggles with faith. So are we seeing both? And would you ascribe both of those to things that need to be readdressed, addressed, readdressed in the Chinuch system? So, um, the habits that we have come from really the way we've been brought up. So a lot of from from birth women and girls who go through the basiacal system or any from high school. So there's lots of rituals that we do anyways. Of course, I keep Shabbos. Of course, I keep kosher. Of course, I dress a certain way. Of course, I say bracha before I put food in my mouth. Of course, and I wake up in the morning. I say moidani. I wash my hands. The toast is dying. Whatever it is, the habits that have been put in your life, all the rituals, um, they they are kind of put in your life from a very, very young age um, without so much meaning, like without, without so much deep understanding of why we're doing it. For example, I'll give you a small example. Lots of women light the Shabbos candles and have lit Shabbos candles their whole married life, and they have no idea why they do it, where it comes from, what the halachas are, um, why Hashem, what, you know, where does it come from? What's the deep meaning or significance? It's kind of a, a ritual, what I do in order to bring Shabbos in. And for some women, that is enough. For some people, if every single ritual or every single religious practice um, is not, um, has no meaning behind it. That means I don't understand why I'm doing this. Why is this bringing me closer to Hashem? Then, the, then when, when they get out of a structured system where they're not learning about Torah mitzvahs all the time, they begin, all these habits begin to fall away because I don't have a reason why. I'll give you an example in, in the non-Jewish world. So everybody wakes up in the morning and they brush their teeth. And then before they go to bed, they brush their teeth. And they're told why. Do you know why? Because if you don't brush your teeth, you won't have any teeth when you're older. Your teeth need to be looked after. And you want to have teeth because you want to be able to eat and talk. And I mean, all the things that you do with your teeth, teeth are very, very important, right? And you're told not only that you must brush your teeth every morning and every evening, but why you must brush your teeth. What benefit will it give you personally? So when my kids say to me, you know, I don't want to brush my teeth. I can't be bothered to brush my teeth today. Well, I'm too tired to brush my teeth. I say to them, you know, I really, really want you to have teeth when you're older. It's very important that you have teeth when you're older. And I make it a bit of a joke. So they go brush their teeth because I'm telling them for your good. 
Not for me. I don't mind. I don't care. But for your own good, for your sake, this is something that in your future, this will be very good for you. And so therefore people keep on that ritual, that practice of brushing their teeth twice a day. But if nobody explained to anybody why they had to brush their teeth, Within a few years, or when people live alone, they'll stop brushing their teeth. My mother made me do this, but I don't know why I'm doing this, so I'll stop doing this. And you kind of lose the inspiration. No one's watching you. No one's making sure you do it. So you have to make sure you do it yourself. So you have to understand why you're doing it. The same is true for all for for, for every single mitzvah that you do. No. Yeah, so, so this isn't only the chinuch system. It's also parents that should be educating their children about Absolutely. the mitzvahs. And it's yeah. very like, good. So why, why am I doing this? Why? Why? So when you're three years old, you don't tell a kid why they're keeping Shabbos. We keep Shabbos. We make it nice. And here's a lollipop or here is Nash or because Shabbos is great. But as you get older, so tell them, you know, so it's by them. You know, so that when they are on their own, they'll feel like, oh, I love Shabbos. I, I want Shabbos in my life. Yes. When girls are experiencing or women are experiencing challenges, I know when it comes to boys, they'll go to their Rebbe to discuss issues or a Sholem Yeshiv or something like that. If there's a Mashkiach in the Yeshiva. So they have an address to go to when they're struggling. I don't know if they would go when they're struggling with Amuna. Maybe yes, if they have questions and uh, hopefully they'd be answered. Sometimes they're not. When, when a young woman is experiencing these challenges, be in high school or in seminary, what's their address to go ask their questions to? And do they actually go? Do they go and ask questions or do they just uh, continue in life and uh, just uh, keep it internally being embarrassed to be asking questions of Imuna, which would label somebody as a heretic? Um, so this is this. I feel this question has many parts. Um a part of it is, do women have other women to speak to? Uh, I've heard this across communities around the world, that um, because a, a man goes to shul three times a day and they become a members of a certain shul, it's like a men's club, and they feel connected to the Rav, they see the Rav every day or almost every day, and they can ask the Shadows directly to him before Chakras, after Chakras, in my, you know, after my, whatever it is, they have this automatic connection. But for women, they don't. Often the Rebbeton of the shul is not a, not a Torah teacher. Um, maybe she feels even uncomfortable, um, you know, answering questions about Amuna. Maybe she's not a, a people person. So your Rav might be a very people person, but maybe the Rebbeton is more introvert and more shy. So she's not the type of person that reaches out and says, you know, come over to my house and speak to me. Maybe you don't feel comfortable to do that. And suddenly outside of a school or a seminary environment, you don't really have a role model, a, a female role model. A lot of women won't go and ask the Rav the question. And even if they did, um, the answers that you would give a man about Amuna's struggles is very different than the answers you'd give a woman about Amuna struggles because it comes from a totally different place. So I think that, that there's lots of there's lots of issues here. There is there for for women, you know, who are no longer in seminary, they're now in university in their jobs, even in communities and they belong to a shul, often they don't feel connected to the Rebison. The Rebison is not their address. So suddenly they don't have anyone. Often they won't feel comfortable going to speak to the Rav. Um, so now they don't have anyone to ask their questions to. And they, and they have even bigger struggles. When you're single, you think you have struggles. Once you're married with kids, you have bigger struggles. Shalom bias issues, chinuch issues, um, hashkafic issues. As you grow and develop, you might um, have lots more questions than you did when you were 15. Now that you're 35 and you have had to deal with a lot more in your life. So it's even more important. It's even more critical. And yet um, lots of people don't have this. And um, they don't realize even that it's an issue until they come 
come across a very big issue in their life and suddenly they realize, I have no one to speak to about this. I can't speak to my mother and I can't speak to my sister. I can't speak to the rabbits and I have no one to speak to about this. And they feel even more and more lost. So I think that's um, that's something that people, you know, when it says in Pirkei this is not a suggestion. This is this is absolutely crucial for a person's growth and their spiritual health. Um, I think there's also another question in there, as in if, if a girl in their teenage life or uh, in seminary has Emona questions, will they ask it even though they are surrounded by female role models and rebbitons? And that's to do with the sensitivity of the girl. How concerned is she about getting a good shidduch? Um, how how trusted, how how much does she trust these teachers that if she would ask these questions and then in two, three years time, somebody calls them and says, oh, I heard you had Esther in your class. What type of girl was she? That she won't turn around and say, well, she had real Emona questions when she was 15. Um, you know, and and I don't know, I don't know if, if they if they they can say yes with a full heart, that they would feel comfortable asking these questions. I do think in seminary, especially when people go to Eretz the seminary, they do feel more comfortable asking the seminary teachers these questions because they're outside of their community, they're outside of their their Dalad Amas, they're in Eretz they feel like more anonymous and they are more able to ask the questions. So that's why I think, you know, the seminary environment is a good place to do it in. But even then, um, it's not even then that sometimes people have so much amount of questions because they're very young. I think that people have more uh, a crisis of faith can occur in people's lives as they get older. And if they have only been doing um, mitzvahs, Torah mitzvahs out of habit for those 30, 40 years, and then suddenly they have a crisis of faith, they have very little to fall back on internally. And then if they have no reverence near them, they have very little to fall on externally. And then we see, you know, I, I don't even have to give examples. Everybody, every single person listening to this podcast probably can give examples in their own community of 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 women who have, you know, walked away from everything. And it's quite shocking. And I don't think it's so shocking. I think that this is, um, you know, this is a, this is what happens when we don't properly set up a structure. That means, in my opinion, every single Rav should make sure that their wife is a real Rebbitzin for the community. And if their wife cannot be, that they set up a woman in the shul that will come to the shul once or twice a week, um, give shirim and be a Rebbitzin type figure for the women in their community. And if they don't do this, um, they're doing a massive disservice to their community because there are, there are women in their community who will not speak to them. And if there's no Rebbitzin to speak to, they won't speak to anyone. And then they will, you know, it'll cause, you know, incredible issues or, or deep issues within these families. And then you see it come out in their children. And I think that that's, you know, a massive responsibility for any leaders of any communities across the world. Otherwise, the women are just going to turn, if they don't have access to people, they'll turn to the internet and you're not going to find very favorable information on the internet. That's just not going to go in a, a good direction. Yes, or they'll turn to their friends. A lot of women will just turn to their friends. So if they have a good group of friends, they'll be very good. And if they have a very toxic group of friends or a group of friends who, who you know, are very disconnected, it will just, it'll be like a, a spiral, yeah, downward spiral. Right. Let's talk a little bit about technology, especially for the high school young ladies, the girls in seminary. What's the impact of technology, especially social media? How does it impact them? In terms of their religious uh, attachment, you mean? A religious attachment, their emuna, their religious practices, and their values and ethics as well. Yeah. So I say very often, and I'm sure everybody's heard it, that, that your diet is not only what you eat and drink, but also what you watch, what you listen to, what you read, this is all your diet. And the diet of your mind is actually much more important than the diet of your body. Of course, we should all be very careful about physical health. But your diet of your mind is what shapes you and what 
what what makes your decisions even subconsciously for you before you even think you've made the decision, you've already made the decision based on everything that you're watching, everything that you're reading, everything that you're listening to, the diet of your mind. And um, therefore, um, I'm not going to be the first person to say it, nor the last person to say it, but everybody, the diet of lots of people's minds nowadays is social media, um, so we're talking about Instagram and TikTok and all these things, as well as the Netflix, as well as everything else that keeps us connected to celebrity culture, fashion week, all these kind of things um, that we think is very normal just to see it. What's so wrong with me watching it? I'm not going to I'm not going to go to fashion week in Paris, but why shouldn't I watch all the different fashions so fun? Or I'm not going to ever become a celebrity, but why shouldn't I watch a reality TV show every single day about a celebrity's life? It's never going to be my life. Why is that so bad for me to watch it? All these kind of things. And what happens is, is that it, it makes for everybody, there's lots of things that, that, that is damaging about it. But one of the big things is that we end up living a very virtual life. And when you live a virtual life, um, your actual life, you feel very disconnected from. Um, so, uh, let's say it's a ridiculous example, but let's say somebody had a baby and they take a picture of their brand new baby in a very cute, you know, they set up a whole cute kind of, uh, a, a photo shoot and they have their baby in this like gorgeous little basket and they take beautiful pictures of their baby, which they then Photoshop to make it even more gorgeous. And suddenly they have beautiful pictures of their baby and their baby could be sitting in a car seat or a cot or a crib right in front of them. And they're busy staring at the photos of their baby on their phone. You understand that they're living a very, very, virtual life, like those photos feel more uh, connecting to them than the actual live baby that's in front of them. I know it's a ridiculous example, but I've seen it myself in real life. Um, wh- why does that make a difference um, for religious life or commitment of religious life or even feeling connected to Hashem? Um, what it means is, is that when we're so connected to a virtual life that's on our phone or on our computer, then the actual life that we live in front of us is not as stimulating and doesn't feel as connecting to us. So let's say keeping Shabbos. A lot of times people who are so disconnected to the virtual reality, find Shabbos very boring. Like they'll say, Shabbos is so boring. Why? Because anything that's on a computer on your phone will be much more stimulating to the brain all the time, all the time. You're getting constant feedback all the time. And so they'll feel that Shabbos is boring and they'll feel that they cannot connect to anything on Shabbos. So their their connection to the spiritual world or their actions that they take um, is less stimulating and therefore less exciting for them. And because they've They've, they've taught their brain so much that about stimulation that anything that isn't as exciting, like is sitting in the sukkah as exciting as watching a movie is, 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 you know, sitting around the Shabbos table as exciting as texting five different friends all at the same time and having five different conversations. Probably not. And so therefore the, the religious practice becomes something that is a big burden instead of a way that we can connect with Hashem. Mm-hmm. There's also, also another thing that happens is that we believe that, that, that parallel to our physical universe, there is a spiritual universe that is happening all the time. So all the things that I'm doing physically or everything that I'm doing physically, there is something spiritually happening. So when I do a mitzvah, it's not only that I do an action of, let's say, I said, I help, I help somebody, I, you know, I cook a meal for somebody, but also there's a spiritual thing happening. I'm increasing chesed in the world, or I'm, I'm doing something for another neshama, another human being, and, and, and it's connecting our neshama. So there is something happening all the time on two levels, but I feel that the, the technological world, the tech, yeah, um, the, the virtual world um, has become more real for people than the physical world. And it definitely um, means that they don't feel that they connect to the spiritual world as much or even at all, um, which makes it therefore very hard to do ritual practice if we don't feel that there is a spiritual feedback happening. Right. That That's for sure. And also that has an impact on Chinuch, because to try to teach a child 
a high schooler for an hour when they're used to watching something for two minutes and getting their high, and now you're giving them a whole sheer. It could be in any subject. They are just not there anymore. They're not able to focus and they're not interested. And if, if we overlay that to the challenges that we've experienced throughout the world and the past few years have been traumatic. We've had tremendous changes that we've gone through COVID, the war in Russia, earthquakes, and especially October 7th. So on the one hand, we are, or the people who are on social media, technology, they're frying their brains. And also we feel very fragile in the world nowadays. It's frightening. It's random. How do we deal with all this, especially on an, an Amuna level? How, how do we, especially teaching the young ladies, because that's our focus for today, how do we deal with this? How do we have a solution to A, all the challenges, the Amuna challenges in the world, and B, getting them to be able to focus on the depth of the of the needs of the day of being more spiritual when uh, it seems so distant from them? So um, everybody has a lot of anxiety nowadays because of everything that you've mentioned. It's increased our anxiety. And the reason is because we all want to feel very much in control of our life. And we can't be in control of our life if suddenly we have COVID and everybody's dying or suddenly. And the most recent terrible thing for Clyostrol, the October 7th attack, which feels so devastating on so many levels. And then we talk about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and we say, well, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu is all-knowing and all-powerful, why didn't he stop all these terrible things happening? And so it may, on the one hand, if we say everything's random, then anything can happen. And if we say everything is directly from our Kodesh Baruch so why isn't Hashem saving us from all these things? So these these things are like a dual, uh, it's like a, a, a dual problem for people to think about um, because their, their their lack of control makes them feel like I can't control anything in the world and I feel so unsafe, therefore I can't control everything or anything. And then, but I believe in Hashem, that Hashem's going to take care of us. And then October 7th happened, you're like, Where's Hashem? So all of this is directly connected to to any everyone being able to realize that um, we we were never in control. We are never in control. And um, there are a lot of Emuna classes, a lot of my classes on Torah Anytime, but hundreds of thousands of classes on Torah Anytime or everywhere that you can access um, about understanding or really seeing your life. And I think this is connected so much to Purim. So I'm so happy we're doing this in the month of Adar um, because, you know, when we see, when we read the Megillah, Megillah's Esther, um, so we we think that all of the occurrences happened over the space of a few weeks or a few months, but really um, the Megillah happened over a period of 11 years. So it's a very long, long time. And we know that the name of Hashem is not mentioned once in the Megillah. And we are told, though, um, when we read the Megillah, all of us can see the Yad Hashem throughout the whole Megillah. But when it was happening, let's say, to Esther Malka, when it was actually happening to her, it could have felt like everything is so random or everything is so terrible or everything bad is happening to me. Maybe Esther Malka could say that about Self. Um, but really, if we say, and this is something that I say so often in my shirim, the word in Hebrew for coincidence is mikre, which means coincidentally. You know, bermikre, I happened to meet this person. Bermikre, I happened to have this phone call. Bermikre, I met you, or I did this thing, or I happened to be, live in this town at this stage of my life. Uh, bermikre, mikre, coincidentally. And I heard once from one of my teachers that if you take the word mikre and you move around the letters, it says rak mehashem. And in Yiddishkeit, we don't believe in mikre at all. There is no such thing as coincidence. We only believe in Rachme Hashem, that this is directly from Hashem. Also the good and also the bad, everything is Rachme Hashem. And 
Therefore, if we lean into our faith, we are able to see the Yad Hashem everywhere. Esther, Malka, Mordechai, Yodi, everybody in the Purim story, all the great people that we that we see in the Purim story, they saw the Yad Hashem. We see the Yad Hashem because we see the whole story from beginning to end. So we're like, oh, look, Hashem was here and Hashem especially made it that it was in this place at this time. And Hashem especially made sure that Mordechai was there and Haman was there. And and, and, and we can see all the little pieces of Hashkocha process in, in the Megillah. And one of our own responsibilities in our own life is to to look for our own Hashkacha process, look for the Yad Hashem in our life, because we don't know the beginning, middle, and end of our life. We are in our life, so we don't know the whole Megillah of our own life. Um, but a good way to increase our own personal amunah is to write down the Megillah of our life that has happened so far and see how Hashem has, the Yad Hashem in all those pieces. Because when we know that Hashem has always been there, then we know that Hashem will always continue to be there. And therefore, there is a reason for everything, even if I cannot see the reason for everything. And that takes away the idea that everything is random because we know nothing is random. And um, we don't understand all the hard things that happens to us in our own lives. Everybody in their own personal life. I mean, October the 7th was something that happened to Kalal Yisrael. And that was a very big tragedy and a big, huge pain for all of us. But on a much, much more it's a small, smaller scale. Everybody in their own lives has um, tragedies or pain that they experience, and they also don't know the reason why. Why did this have to happen to me? Why did that bad thing have to happen to me? What you know? And 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 when you, the more people you speak to, the more you realize that everybody has that in their life. And the way to um, really connect with Hashem in those times is to look back. That's what the Megillah really teaches us. Megillah's Esther. Look at the whole Megillah, and you'll see that Hashem is right there. In it, you know. In the, in the background, that's why Hashem's name is not mentioned at all in the Megillah, but we know that Hashem is right there. You don't even need to, you know, you can, you can see it so, so clearly. And I say to people, you can, you know, whenever you meet a very elderly person and they're reaching the end of their life and they tell you the story about their life, they will tell you this had to happen because this happened and this had to happen what this, because of this happened. And, and, you know, I went to Italy because of that reason, but really it's because I met my wife there. And then we moved to America and I thought we were just choosing randomly, but really that's where I was able to build the community in this place. And, and nearer the end of people's lives, they tell you the Megillah of their life and how they can now see Hashem in every moment. But it's very hard when you're in the middle of your life and you're going through something painful and you're like, but where is Hashem? Why isn't he, why isn't he here for me? So I think that the practice of um, looking back at our own life and seeing everything as a gift directly from Hashem will increase people's emunah practically and also will be able to help people understand it's not random. And no, I don't understand always why Hashem makes the decisions, but if Hashem is right here for me, then I can lean into it. I can lean into my faith. And by doing so, um, we increase the joy in our life, which is also so the month of Adar about being besimcha and increasing the joy, and in that way, we the more ta- the the more you increase the joy in the, your life, the more you will see the Yad Hashem. That's the magic of it. Looks like we all have homework to do, looking back over our lives and jotting down the involvement that Akadosh Baruch Hu has for each of us. Thank you so much. That's very, very wise. One last question for you. I know you were recently in the tri-state area giving lectures, shirim and the like. If people want to reach out to you, contact you, I know now that you're located in the United States of America, you're more accessible than being across the large ocean, being in London. So how can people get in touch with you for opportunities to have you come and and visit their communities. Um, you can all email me uh, at sdhamilton at gmail.com. Very easy. It's just my name. And if you email me and reach out to me, um, I'm sure we can arrange something. I'd love to speak in your communities. And um, that is something that I really enjoy doing. I enjoy meeting um, women from across the world and speaking about on a whole range of topics. So that would be amazing. Terrific. I hope people take advantage. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me.
Joining us now is Rabbi Daniel Mechanic. Rabbi Mechanic is the director of Project Chazon, which is an organization he founded in 1996 to present courses, seminars, classes on Jewish philosophy, and more to Beis Yaakov, yeshiva, and day school students. He has given a lot of them. Rabbi Mechanic, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ari. It's a pleasure uh, to share some of my insights. You know, I went to Kol, Yeshiva Kol Torah in Israel for three years, and I learned by Rav Shlomo Zalman, and, and then I went to Passaic for a year, and then I learned in Torah Vidas many years, and when I was a 22-year-old Bachar, Rav Noach Weinberg chopped me to come to Eretz Yisrael and to train me in Kirov, and that's what I did for many, many years, Kirov Rechokim. And then about 27, 27, about 28 years ago, I started to receive phone calls from from parents, 98% of the time the mothers, describing to me the behavior of their children. Some of the, that was, some would consider it off the derech, uh, some of it would consider it troublesome, whatever it is. They figured if I could work with Christopher's and Christina's, maybe I could work with Ruchis and Suri's and Shmuley's and Moishis. So therefore, I shifted the emphasis in my life from Kirov Rechokim to Kirov Krovim. I created a program called Project Chazon, where I started off with five schools that were interested in having me come and present about, you know, seminars about Yiddishkeit. And today, it's over 420 schools that I visit. I've uh, had the support to present close to 8,000 seminars that are about three hours long. And Bezrus Hashem, uh, I've spoken to over 300,000 from teenagers and it's been a fascinating experience those are huge numbers that's unbelievable you know i have to tell you i did hear a lecture of you once uh, that you gave a number of years ago and you spoke about an anonymous survey that was given around 15 years ago actually the the lecture was more recent but the survey was about 15 years ago it was given to 1411th and 12th grade base yakov girls in the united states and canada about the 10 questions that they would ask a rabbi choose your top 10 what would you ask Tell us, tell our audience, what were some of the questions that they were wondering about? This is 15 years ago. Right, 15 years ago. Fascinating survey. We'd love to talk about it in length. But basically, here are some of the questions that were on the minds of these 1,400 girls. One of them was, you know, the truth of Torah. They see, you know, 3 billion Muslims and Christians, many of them dying you know, quote unquote, Al Kiddush Hashem for their religion. How do we know the Torah is Emes? That was a very big question. They had questions on Sneus. What's the difference between, you know, what is Chumra? What is Minhag? What is, you know, Halacha? They had questions, all types of questions about interactions with uh, boys. And uh, they had the Bechira question. Hashem knows what we're going to do. How do we have Bechira? These are some, you know, Elo Ve'elo, Torah Pat. These were some of the questions that they felt. These are the questions that they would ask a rabbi if they had a chance to privately. Interesting. So, I think a parallel between almost all of those, maybe not the boys' question, that maybe, maybe that's more of a halacha, that could be a shkafa as well, but many of those that you mention are hashkafa-based, fundamental hashkafa questions. If you would ask that question today, if you would ask 1,400 or 2,000 young base Yaakov girls, what are your top questions? What do you think would be the questions asked nowadays? Would they be focused on hashkafa, or do you think... We would see a change between that survey 15 years ago when smartphones weren't so available, before right. COVID, before October, right. before some of the schmutz, not all the schmutz, but some right. of the schmutz of the world that we live in has come out. So what do you, what do you think the it, question would be today? It would and be completely different. It would be completely different. 
completely different. I mean, Marcus some Mer- of them, they still talk to me, different Ashkafa questions, we still get the, the truth of Torah questions, the Bechira questions, etc. But their issues that lie deep in their heart and souls are very, very different today. So look, I, I could talk for hours about the indisputable fact that our Chinuch system has been extraordinarily successful. And its growth, both quantitatively and qualitatively, is really unprecedented. And we are producing, and we continue to produce, many tens of thousands of young men and women who are Shemri Torah and Mitras, and they love Yiddishkeit, and they have Yerushimayim and Avas Hashem. But it is also true that many of our children are struggling somewhat with their Yiddishkeit, and they find it extremely difficult to see the truth and the beauty of Yiddishkeit. And it is, we're finding it's becoming increasingly difficult to produce inspired kids who feel close to Hashem and who love Torah and who love Klal Yisrael and mitzvahs and simply love being from Jews. I mean, I'll tell you, Ari, I have asked many large groups of from teenagers, we're talking tens of thousands. On numerous occasions, give me one word they would choose to describe the Torah or Yiddishkeit. One word. Very rarely was the response awesome, fantastic, gishmak. I have asked many large groups of from teenagers to describe something in Hashem's world that is beautiful. Some mentioned the sunrise, the mountains, the oceans, nature. Babies, rarely did anyone instantaneously say, what do you mean, Yiddishkeit, Torah. I have privately asked approximately 1,000 from teenagers, privately, if they could start life over and be born a Gentile, what would they choose? The responses were mind-boggling and way too painful to share. And the overwhelming majority of them were not troubled kids from troubled backgrounds. And the problem is that this situation exists while there's an ongoing war taking place in our children's lives. The Satan is attacking our children's neshamas 24-7, and the Satan is armed with nuclear weapons. When I grew up in the 60s, the Sahara had conventional weapons, little bullets. You know, once a year on Purim, the Sahara had a hand grenade, and we did a terrible aveira of drinking a beer. Okay, very, very uh, different world today. And, you know, again, I am not talking here about off the derech kids. Everything I'm saying here is about the nine, I would say, let's say the 90% of kids who will remain from their whole life. You know, I like to say the 201070. What do I mean by that? When I walk into a classroom, any class, I walk into a 12th grade base yako, 12th grade yeshiva, but you could be sure 20% of these kids are and will be. Kedoshim, Tahirim, future Rabbanim, Rashi Yeshiva, the most Erlich of Torah, Balabatim, 20%. Again, these are generalizations. 10%, Leilainu, we're going to probably lose them. It's the 70% Beinayim who will remain from their whole lives and send their kids to Yeshiva and Beis Yaakov. Their Neshamas are up for grabs. Will they end up inspired and live lives of depth? a real connection to Hashem and Torah. That's the question. And me and my chaverim in this uh, business, as we say, we are finding another issue, that many of our children have a profoundly distorted view of Hashem and what He wants from us. And we hear this daily. Many kids' perceptions is that Hashem sits up there on His throne and He angrily gazes down upon them. 
and he seeks every opportunity to punch them and get them. This is what we hear every day. I've heard so many boys and girls, from so many boys and girls, that Hashem, he's angry. He punishes them. He judges them. And all he does is put restrictions on them and cause them pain. And that Yiddishkeit is like oppressive and it crushes you. And that's a tragedy. Because his mom is it's the opposite. They don't know that Hashem loves them and he wants them to be happy and that he wants them to enjoy their life. And therefore, my presentation, as you would ask, has changed. 15 years ago, when that those questions were asked, and 20 years ago, and 25 years ago, I came into a class to say, kids, why are we from? And the answer is, of course, the Tyrosemus. And let me give you all the evidence that we have that the Tyrosemus. And here's what the Rishonim say, and here's what the Rambam says, and here's the, what the Ramban, and the Haddam of the Sefer HaChinuch. They all talk about this. And our Mesorah, and the Tyrosemus. And then we'd hope for Yadata Hayom, you have to know the emes. You have to get into your kishkas. But today, you know, truth, these things, doesn't really resonate with them so much. Today, we're it's all about, you know, the eight Sahara. When I go in today, I still talk about the Yisodos HaMunah, that, you know, we have a Mesorah back there, Sinai. But today, I'm, I, I like to say, I'm no longer a Mechanich. I'm a Mashpia. And we need to inspire them. And we need to nurture their Neshamas. And we need to tell them, you know, convince them that Shreinu Matog Cholkeinu. So it really is, you know, a different world. It really is. So we, we have gone through questions, deep questions of hashkafa, of thought, of emesh, and we've gone to Yetzirah. And you also said something fascinating. It sounds like 15 years ago we were dealing with the small satan, and now we're dealing with the huge satan. Oh, yeah. It's a different what world. You, what do you think has brought on this dramatic change? And those are probably the same changes. MS, small Satan dealing with Ashkafic issues, huge Satan dealing with the Yetzirah. 15 years is not that long, but it seems like centuries. Oh, yeah. 15 sure. years ago. So 100%. What's, what's brought on this change? Is it a, a function of general change in society, which has changed dramatically? Is it technology? Is it changes internally that we've gone through? What's brought this on? Well, first of all, what makes it so difficult for our kids these days to see the beauty and the splendor of our Torah lifestyle is the world they're growing up in, like you said, the change. See, I come, we come from a different dar than our children, and we grew up in a world thirsting and driven towards meaning and purpose and, and truth. And parents and something they have to accept that today's youth are radically and fundamentally different than us. And a lot of our kids today are driven by, by by one thing, you know, pleasure, comfort, chill, you know, and truth and meaning. Like I mentioned before, it doesn't resonate as much. You know, we grew up idealistic. We grew up with a profound sense of mission. Today's, you know, we were building Yiddishkeit in America in the 60s and the 70s, etc. You know, we were building shuls and shtiblach and camps and Eruvs and, and Hatzalah and art scroll and Pirche and restaurants, you know. And and we, we had Russian jury we had to save. We had Iranian jury. We had Syrian jury. We had the survival of the Jewish people during the Six-Day War and during the Yom Kippur, you know. And we were in constant contact with um, and had exposure to to the mysterious nefesh of Holocaust survivors. And what's mentioned is the Lovmenska Rebbe Zatzal, and he, he he bent over and gave me a kiss on my on my forehead when I told him this. We all we, we had access to Holocaust survivors, the, the, the greatest heroes. And and many of our kids today are just you know they're they're not involved with these deeper issues, and they don't have this sense of mission and idealism, and they are immersed and addicted. 
to their phones and their iPods and iPads and et cetera. And, you know, beneath all their, you know, religiously correct flows and actions, many of them are wondering, why on earth does Hashem care if my elbows are covered? And how do I get the watermelon? And how I get the watermelon hits out of my watermelon on Shabbos because of Borer, like Hashem, you know, like, what is this all about? You know, and that's because they don't understand Yiddishkeit. They really don't understand, and you know, halacha. They don't understand our mission. And you know, if I would share, yes, it was different. Just some of the horror I mentioned to you privately. Some of the horrors that came across my desk just this week alone. You know, it, it, it's just mind-boggling. I once uh, mentioned to one of our gedolim that you know, in my days, people went off the derech normally. They did Averos normally. Today, no one rebels or does Averos normally anymore. Today, they just, our days, we didn't destroy our, our bodies and our minds and our souls. Whatever. They went off the derrick. Today, it's really a problem. And therefore, in order to fight this problem, we, we really need to inspire them. We have to teach them we have a Torah Shaim. And we can only inspire them if we ourselves are inspiring. And we have to present Torah living as spectacular and thrilling. So that, first of all, just the, the entire society. And then, of course, the, the ultimate, the, the, the biggest problem of all is technology. The entire issue of social media and TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram, it is our greatest challenge. And it's a real Corbin out there. And the damage it is causing is what, you know, many Mechanchim and me, what we have seen, the damage of all this, many of our kids' brains, and especially their neshamas, are simply no longer available for education and inspiration. So again, I'm generalizing. Again, I mentioned in the beginning, we have tens of thousands of B'nai Torah and B'nai Torah, but there's a significant minority of kids who are really, really, uh, you know, in trouble. And, um, you know, and everything that's going on, the, the, the profoundly inappropriate material that's out there, it's a magefa. It's mamish a magefa. If anyone speak to the rabbanim, the therapists, and the mentors, what's, what, what we have going on out there with many of our kids. You know, my good friend, Rabbi Zafaria Wallerstein, Zatzal, told me many times, all this stuff that the kids are into today, many of them, it rewires them. It damages their spiritual nerve endings, and therefore it destroys their innocence. And without innocence, it is very difficult to feel Kedusha. And without the ability to feel Kedusha, it is very difficult to feel and see the beauty of Tznias and Davening and the beauty of Shabbos and the beauty of learning. And it pains me very deeply to have to say these things publicly. And that's without me even going into detail. So this is what we're up against. Right. So two major challenges, unfortunately, entire society, and that's impacting us, and also the technology specifically, TikTok, Instagram, etc. Just want to take it to another level. I asked about how it's impacting us, and I want to divide up now between segments of orthodoxy, because if we're talking the impact of general society and technology, do we have differences in the impact on modern orthodox versus yeshivas versus Hasidish, which may not be as open to being influenced by the entire society and technology? So are we seeing differences in 
where people are coming from, their backgrounds. And maybe an interesting question also, because you've seen so many communities throughout the United States and the world, would you say that there are differences in geography, maybe? Maybe certain cities that have more open societies, places like that, which are admittedly more challenging from a Gashmias and Tiver perspective. Do you see a difference between the geographies that you visited? I do. There's a major difference between all those three segments of modern Orthodox, Yeshivish, and Hasidish. Time does not allow me here to really get into details, but they are very different, and they're very different cultures. And what can be considered acceptable in one culture is horrific in another culture. So therefore, the goals and the expectations of Hendel and where we want the kids ending up in these three different, uh, you know, Types that you mentioned are radically different, and therefore the chinuch is different. You know, I once was walking with my wife in Motzei Shabbos in a certain place in Flappish many, many years ago, and we passed a movie theater when they used to have those things, you know, I don't know if they have them anymore. You no, know, and, and on this, there's a Motzei Shabbos movie theater, and there was a line. In one part of the line, uh, you know, there was a modern Orthodox teenage boy and girl. And then a few people behind them with two real, real Siddish guys who long get a record. And I said to my wife, look at this. For one of them, for that first couple, what they're doing, their act, what they're doing now, it's part of their culture. It's not a mice rebellion. The rebellion here, this is their culture. Right or wrong, Shulchan Aruch, I'm not getting into. But for the, that other two guys over there, what they're doing is a mice rebellion of Veira Chamura. You understand? Same, very same action. And I have, you know, there's what to say on this. Um, but, you know, it's a different world. Look, I was just somewhere in America and I spoke to a very, 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 that's a lot of various, modern Orthodox high school. You had the teenage boys, girls, 11th to 12th grade. Every single one of them, everyone, has an unfiltered smartphone. And we all know what that means. And we'll leave it at that. It's a disaster. It Terrible. is. It is. It is. You know, it all depends. You know, the Shulchan Aruch is at the final decider of their lifestyle. And uh, therefore, the Chinuch is different. On the other hand, in this modern Orthodox school they just told you about, there was, there was a whole bunch of boys who are learning every day, and they're, they're, they're doing dafyomi and this and that. So, you know, that's uh, I have a lot to say in this, but we don't have the tabelia. And there are certain cities in America, I will not say names, um, that they have a disproportionate amount of trouble with the troubled kids, kids who were having trouble, all types of troubles, for many, for various reasons. It could be economic reasons, it could be from kite reasons, yeshivish reasons, whatever it is. Yes, there are differences. Right. Okay, so let's take it to the next step. We've been talking about high school primarily. I know right. recently you visited Eretz Yisrael, you spoke at numerous seminaries, and I'd like you to maybe compare, contrast what you saw between the high schoolers that you speak to, the seminaries that you speak to. And was there anything, for example, that surprised you in the discussions that you had, or was it somewhat similar to discussing the issues with the high schoolers that you discuss? The issues yeah. it, it's very it, different. The seminary girls, these are girls who are about to come back to America, they're making decisions right now. What is the lifestyle they want to lead? Do they want a long-term learner, short-time learner, no learner? You know, they're, they're trying to figure out what the next hundred years. 
and they're getting ready for marriage, kind of, you know. And there are, you know, these girls are wonderful. They really, really are. But I, you know, there's a lot, a lot of issues. You know, there's a lot of anxiety issues, um, you know, about their growth, etc. There are girls, you know, there's untreated. They're being told that they can't bring their problems into a marriage. And they recognize there's untreated pathologies and, let's say, trauma or abuse that haven't been treated. Um, you know, will they be able to sustain the high level of roughness that they have right now and bring it back to America, to their home, to their to their phones, to their this? You know, these, these are all the things that are that are on their mind. And um, if you speak to the therapist in Israel, uh, you know, there's a significant minority that are have a lot, a lot of issues. You know, and again, I want to make it clear that. I'm just focusing on the problem. Rove, 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 or wonderful. You know, I have a, even though my name is Mechanic and I'm Rabbi Mechanic, I have a brother who's a brain surgeon, so he's Dr. Mechanic. And all he to- all he deals with is nebuch people who have brain tumors. But Baruch Hashem, 99% of the people in the world don't have that. But that's what he deals with. Me too. I deal with the with the with the problems and the issues, the severe ones. But the 70% that I said that are good from and they're going to remain from their whole life. But the question is, what is their what is the depth of their uh, you know of their of their observance and what are they are they, are they reverse Murano as we say? That on the outside they're behaving very from, but on the inside. Real issues. And this Very is something challenged. that has to be addressed by parents and by Mechantim. Okay, so let's talk about parents then. And you said something fascinating earlier. You said you've gone and you and people who are in your area have gone from being Mechantim to be Mashbim, to be inspired. So let's talk about parents initially. Parents who are listening today, what's your so What's your advice that you have to them in raising their children? How can we have children inspired, not only on the outside, because the hats and the beautiful clothing that we wear nowadays, they look great on the outside, but how do we, do we have that reflected on the inside as well? The answer is, just like we have a physical skeleton, we also have an emotional skeleton. And if our emotional skeleton, create a home where our children are emotionally healthy, then even when that inevitable Avera comes along or inevitable, you know, tragedy, whatever comes along, they'll be able to handle it. That's the number one thing we can give our kids so that they that they remain from and pass on our Masora and love Yiddishkeit, emotional health. And during the years that our children are growing up, the parents' most important objective is to make their home an enjoyable place for the kids to be. And it has to be more attractive than the competition, than the streets and the, the, the iPods and the iPads and the poles and whatever else is out there. And built into our Masora are, are ways to do this that Hashem has provided us. I'll just give quickly a few quick things for parents. Number one, they have to, and kids themselves have told me this, they have to adore their children. They, the children have to know that they are loved, and they have to be told that they are loved, and they have to be told that you're that you're happy that they're their child, and how proud you are. I mean, you can't be weird, but you got to do it in a normal way. The kids have to sense like, wow, my parents are absolutely crazy over me, and especially the difficult ones that we all have at least one of them. They need a they need to be adored. Number two. We must, Bizman has that for sure. We have to show physical affection to our children. We have to kiss our children. How much? Often. Find the opportunities. Just don't be weird. You know what I mean? You know, you got to do it. And here's the point. 
if we don't hug our children, both physically and emotionally, someone or something else will, whether it'll be a phone, a TikTok, a Snapchat, an inappropriate relationship, whatever it is, we have to hug our children physically and emotionally. I'd like to say something that I've been saying for years. Everyone should be giving their children a bracha on Friday night at the Shabbos table, even if it's not your minhag. If you feel it's an Aveira, since it's not your minhag, I, Daniel Mordechai, ben Chaim Nachum, take it upon my neshama, that Aveira. Because, first of all, when are you going to be able to get near your 19-year-old son and give him a hug and a kiss? Yeah, you know, you can't do that. You give your kids a bracha, not a quickie, you know, simply... You say the plus, you simply look him and stay and whisper something nice into their ear. You, thank you for helping mommy. Thank you for that. Whatever. The girls, you look great. You look beautiful. Thank you. Whatever. Every one of us has to give our children a bracha on Friday night. And here's the Kiddush. The mothers do. The mothers can do it also. I can't tell you how many hundreds of emails and letters I have of mothers who started to do this, and they said it changed the whole dynamic. And what it is, is it gives your children a tangible, practical beauty of Yiddishkeit. Let them feel that Yiddishkeit is warm and loving in a deep way, and it's very powerful. It'll stay within their heart forever. Let them experience the parents are hugging them and kissing them and whispering in their ear, I love you, and I'm proud of you, whatever it is. I'll tell you another finish. We In my family, we do it for our sons-in-laws and daughters-in-laws. My wife does the daughter-in-laws, I do the sons-in-law. They get a kiss and a bracha, and I think it's very powerful. And then, of course, the final, I mean, I have a lot to say, but the Shabbos table. The Shabbos table is the microcosm of every home. You have to have Zemiris, you have to have Zavar Torah, you know, you have to connect with your children, you have to spend time with them, and you have to work at it. You have to prepare. You know, this. Uh, you know, you ask Bali Tshuva, what brought you closer to Judaism? Almost all of them will tell you, a Shabbos table in an Orthodox home. Ask a kid who's really, really angry or off the derrick, what pushed you off? My Shabbos table. It was World War III. We couldn't sit together. It was horrible. So this is a very important thing. And these are just some quick examples of what Pretty our parents good. did. That was a very, very good answer. Let me ask you one last question as long as we have you. us not this time for parents, but for principles and especially because we're talking about the young ladies right now what are your aids as to them how to imbue their students the young ladies with yiddishkeit so it's on the inside not only on the outside many years ago i met arab moshe shapiro zatzal and i sat down next to him in a hotel lobby and i asked him I said, I asked them, why are many from kids? I didn't have written. I said it exactly like this. Why are many from kids remaining uninspired? They don't love Yiddishkeit and they don't relate to Hashem. His brilliant response was a famous, uh, 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 you know, Vart in the Gemara, which is, Hamaitzi Michavero, Olav Haraya. And he said to me, You want to prevent, you want to, Moitzi Michavero, you want to take away from your children. Who are living, and you and you want to prevent them from living a decadent lifestyle that they perceive as easy and pleasurable and exciting? Allah Haraya, you better provide them with proof, us parents and Rabbeim, to demonstrate to them why they should be living a Torah lifestyle and why Hashem should be present in their life. And I want to share what I believe every principal, every teacher, and parent needs to do this with Zmanazeh. It is the number one, in my opinion, the number one tool to use in being mechanic our children. And that is, we have to be, we have to give over Yiddishkeit like salesmen, not policemen, right? Salesmen, not policemen. What's the chilek? What's the difference? 
A policeman says, you better do this or not do this. Otherwise, you're going to get punished. A salesman says, here's why you should do this or not do this. Here are the reasons. Here's why being from is the best way to live your life. Here's why going to that place or dressing that way or listening to that music is counterproductive and not good for you. In sales, we figure out how to satisfy the customer, what will convince them to buy the product. And we are in the business of selling our children a product called Yiddishkeit. And we have to figure out the best way to sell Torah and mitzvahs and davening and sneas and learning Gemara. And the way to do that is not to be right, but to be effective. So when a kid comes to tell me that they listen, they feel terrible, they listen to Goyesha music, I could tell them about the Mishnah Brewer writes in the Shar Hatzian in Hilchus Tishabov that when a woman is expecting she shouldn't pass by the pubs where Goyesha music is coming out of there because it, it affects them. And I could tell the kids, do you know what this music does to your neshama? As if the kids are going to go, wow, Rabbi, I didn't think of that. Now, I don't want to be right. I want to be effective. And effective is, is to get them to stop listening to Goyesha music. And even more effective is, even if they continue to listen to Goyesha music, Hashem loves them. They're wonderful. They're wonderful, wonderful, good from a Yidim who have a challenge. Now, if they tell me, you know, Rabbi, I get hungry on Yom Kippur and therefore I eat, I don't say, oh, you're a wonderful Ventura and this and that, and Hashem loves you, and try to stop if you can. We have to be balanced and recognize the difference between being Michal Shabbos and eating on Yom Kippur and listening to Hashem music. We have to be salesmen and not policemen. That's a very, very important. And my experience has been that we. We can raise wonderful, inspired from children, but we have to give them the following three amudim for life. The amudi I call them. One is our children have to know we have a Torah's emes. The Torah's emes. And that I do in the seminars, and they could hear from the rabbim about our Masorah to Sinai. We have a Torah's emes. Two, we have a Torah's chayim. We have the most beautiful and spectacular way of life that exists in this world. And three, our children have to self-identify with Klal Yisrael. They are part of Am Hanifar. They are part of the greatest nation and people ever to exist on this planet. So, and I guess we'll uh, conclude here, but if, uh, you know, if Yiddishkeit is on offense and we are scoring points, the outside world won't have a chance. Our students have to know our children with absolute conviction that we, the Amen Nifler, we have a Taurus Emes, Ashabacher Bonamikoa Amim, Ashreinam Atochelkenu, and then we have the Davin. <laughs> a lot of Davining. A lot and of Davin. Absolutely. Make sure that Be'ezrus Hashem, our children will love Hashem, Taira, and Kal Yisrael. Rabbi Mechanic, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Such powerful words, such important insights, and really good hadracha and how to we we should be running our, our lives and teaching, teaching our children, teaching our students, and teaching everyone else, teaching the world. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. Thank you for giving me the chance to be here. Thanks. Kultuv. Shalom Aleichem, this is Ari Wasserman taking back the microphone for our wrap-up, our takeaways, and lessons learned. And I'd like to start with the Rashi and Parshas Kisisa, the Psukim are talking about the Shemana Mishcha, which is the anointing oil that was used in the Mishkan. And as part of the ingredients, the Pasuk says as follows, what was required was Kinman Besem, which is aromatic cinnamon. And Rashi focuses on this. Why didn't it just say cinnamon? Why does it have to say aromatic? 
like cinnamon. And Rashi explains as follows that, in fact, there are two types of cinnamon because cinnamon is the bark of a tree. This is Rashi. Cinnamon comes from the bark of the tree. That's where we get it from. And there is that which is good and has good fragrance and taste. But on the other hand, there's a second type that is just like wood. It's bark, it's wood, and there's nothing more, no fragrance, no taste. And the Pusuk is telling us by saying... Kinman Besem, we need the better type. We need the type of cinnamon that has fragrance and taste. And that is, in fact, what our conversation has been on today's show. Being from not only on the outside, but the inside as well, the fragrance, the taste, we need it to come from the inside, not only on the outside. And the question is, so how do we get there? And that's a conversation that we had with Rabbi David Ashtraf, who told us that teaching and home education need to be besimcha. That is going to inspire the inside religion. Yahadus cannot be forced. It can't be sneeze. Do X, Y, Z. You need to wear this. You need to wear that. It can't be all about the rules and the rules and do's and don'ts. But we need to teach the beauty. And we need to teach it with enthusiasm and love and even teaching halacha or maybe especially teaching halacha, which is typically rules. It cannot be taught like that. It has to be taught with hashkafa. It has to be taught with the tamiya mitzvahs. It's not just about don't do X, Y, and Z, do A, B, and C. But we have to explain the beauty behind all of the mitzvahs. We then spoke with Rabbi Yitzchak Schwartz who told us that typically and naturally kids turn out like their parents for good and for bad. For example, inspired parents should have inspired children, and if not, it really needs to be looked into. Next point, number two from Rabbi Schwartz, a child without emuna is at risk, and even worse, that child is in crisis. Number three, recurring theme of Rabbi Schwartz, don't force a child when it comes to religion. You can't force a girl, for example, to daven. Davening is Avodah Shabalev. And if you try to force a child to daven, there will certainly be no lev in that davening, no heart in that davening. We really need to understand what's really going on with a given child. We need to understand the underlying issues. Number four from Rabbi Schwartz. If we have concerns, if anyone has concerns about a child's observance, don't intervene if you don't know what you are doing. It will just make things worse. And number five, a general comment about the chinuch system, the one-size approach, the one-size-fits-all chinuch approach is causing us to lose tens of percentages of children, not 10%, tens of percentages of children, tens and tens of percentages of children. Each girl and each child is an individual, and it's incumbent on parents and also teachers to give the children what they subjectively need. The same shoe does not fit everybody. We spoke with Rebitson S.T. Hamilton and she said there's such a huge challenge for the young women. They leave high school, they leave seminary and they go there afterward into an unstructured environment. Their entire lives, they've been in school. They've been in elementary school, high school, Beis Yaakov, and they're afterwards seminary. But what happens afterwards, there's no structure. Men, boys, young men, they are in a structured environment through school, through yeshiva, etc. And that, in a certain way, continues. They have minyanim to go to. They have a base medrash to go to. They have chavrusas, they have shirim. But that does not exist for women. And that's a real challenge. And educating them in school for this is incredibly 
difficult. She did say, which is a theme we heard over and over again on today's show, that the best way of teaching is with the Ta'ame HaMitzvah. So there's an understanding of what we are doing. And also, girls need an address. Boys, they have an address. They have the Rav, they have the Rebbe, etc. Girls need an address for discussing their questions. And ideally, it's a fitting Rebetzin. We had a fascinating discussion with Rabbi Daniel Mechanic. Five points from Rabbi Mechanic. Number one, in the past 15 years, we've gone from being challenged by the small Satan to the huge Satan. In other words, we've gone from students, our children, having Hashkafa questions, deep Hashkafa questions, to being dominated by the Gates are horror challenges. That's the huge satan. And he said, fascinating, that unfortunately 10% are at huge risk. Very likely they'll be lost. Terrible. But there's another 20 that are going to be great. They're going to be the Mechaki, the Rabbanim. And 70, 70% are up in the air. And that's fundamentally what our show today was about, that 70%. We saw in Parsha's Kisisa when talking about the Chet HaEgel, a Kaddish Baruch Hu says to Moshe Rabbeinu, do you know what's going on down there? The Chet HaEgel, Klali Yisrael's the terrible Avera. Moshe Rabbeinu hears and he goes down and he sees himself what's going on and only then does he break the Luchos. And the Al-Sheikh asks the following question, why did Moshe Rabbeinu wait? HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him what was going on. He didn't trust HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he had to wait and see for himself. not? that's not the situation. The Al-Sheikh explains as follows, that the worst type of hate that there's no coming back from is when somebody does a sin. He does an Avera, a terrible Avera, and celebrates, and dances, and is some meyach. He's happy that he's doing it. There, in that situation, says the Alshech, ain't kol tikva. There is no hope for those people. Terrible thing. Terrible thing. Unfortunately, that exists, but it's a small, small minority. That has not been our topic for the day. We're not talking about those who are quote-unquote at risk, but we are talking about the 70% that they're up in the air, having challenges. It's more on the outside that they look great, but on the inside, there are some serious challenges. So point number one by Rabbi Mechanic was, it used to be we dealt with the small Satan Ashkafa. Nowadays, the huge Satan, the Yitzhahara challenges. Point number two, what causes change? So what caused the change was changes in society as a whole. That has terribly impacted us and also technology. Technology Nisht good. Technology is really having a negative impact on us. Point number three from Rabbi Mechanic. Teachers need to change roles from being mechanchim to being mashbim. To go from a mechanic, just teaching, teaching information, educating, to being those who inspire, a mashbia, inspire the students. Point number four, parents need to instill emotional health in their children. They need to show both emotional and physical love, especially giving brachas Friday night. And he said as well, it should be both Parents And point number five, such an interesting point, this last one, teachers need to be salesmen. We need to show the beauty of the Torah, just like a Smith salesman shows all the benefits, the beauty of what he's trying to sell, and not policemen. They should not be policemen. We have the Torah. We have the most amazing thing. Let's sell it correctly. Let's explain it correctly. We have to be salesmen and not policemen. And I just want to end off with an important vort. It's in Parshas Vayakel. And it says, when people were donating to the Mishkan, it says, Perek Lamede, Pasuke, Kol Nidiv Libo Yivi Eha Es Shumas Hashem. 
Everyone who has an indeed lev, anyone who's motivated, should bring it to as a donation. As Shumas Hashem, bring that donation to Kadesh Baruch And the focus here, this is the Swas Emes says, what is this word Yevi'echa? What should they bring? The Pashto says Yevi'echa is to bring the donation, bring the Truma. But he says otherwise. He says it's not only about bringing the donation, to bring your gold, to bring your silver, but Kol Nadiv Libo, everyone who has the motivation, bring that motivation with you when you come and give your physical donation, when you're coming to give the gold, the silver, don't only bring that, but bring your motivation, your nidivus. And that, I think, is something that we've been talking about, the desire, the motivation that we should have as parents, as teachers. We need to be motivated not to just go through the actions of mitzvahs, but we also have to have the nidivus lev. The motivation, the love of doing the mitzvahs, and that is what we have to transfer over. That is what we have to teach our students, our children. It's not about going through the motions. It's about putting in the emotion into the motions. We need both the emotion and the motion together. Call nadivli ball. Everyone with that motivation, you be out. Bring that motivation. Bring that internal emotion when we are going through the motions of bringing our donations. And that applies for each and every mitzvah that we do. Thank you so much for listening.